Hello and welcome back to True Crime Guys Podcast. But this is no normal episode of True Crime Guys Podcast. This is episode number six of the Freeloader series. The Freeloader series is old Patreon episodes from approximately about two years ago that are just now being released onto the free platforms. So we call it the Freeloader series because it's funny because you're not paying for anything, but you're still getting it. You know what I mean? It's funny. Some people don't like it. Some people leave bad reviews. It's all good. But guys, this week, it's finally here. The Ted Bundy week. The Theodore Robert Bundy week. Mr. Shockingly Evil Sly Beetle Driver. You know what I'm talking about. It's finally here. So, without further ado, guys, let's jump into uh, Ted Bundy. Oh, real quick. This episode was originally released or aired December 4th, 2017 on Patreon. Okay? So don't come at us with new findings because we already heard about them. All right? So here we go. This is the show. Get you another little taste of Patreon, you bunch of freeloaders. drove by slowly and then it kind of stopped and backed up and the cute driver leaned over and rolled down the passenger window and asked me if I'd like a ride. All I'm saying is we're going to have a good time. 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 Bundy, quite a scumbag. Hmm, is he? Yeah. Hmm. But fuck. So I've heard. Fuck was he interesting. But interesting. <laughs> interesting God. scumbag, though. I Dude, you can't get enough studying for this you one. Really we can't. could have taken a month off, used the entire thing to study, and yeah. still would want more. Yeah. Endlessly fascinating. I think we got some interesting facts. Let's get into coming it. Coming your way. Let's get into it All right. so we can dive in All right. to Ted Bundy. For everything he did to the girls, the bludgeoning and the strangulation, humiliating their bodies torturing them. I feel that the electric chair is too good for it. Those who I've harmed, those who I've caused so much grief. Here is a man who seemingly had everything. Even if they don't believe my expression of sorrow, and remorse will believe what I'm saying now. He's, he's intelligent, he's charismatic, he's handsome. That there is loose in their towns and their communities. People like me today. He is an affront to civilized society. Whose dangerous impulses are being fueled day in and day out by violence in the media in its various forms, particularly sexualized violence. He decided that he was not going to play by anybody's rules. And what scares me 
and let's come into the present now because what I'm talking about happened 30, 20, 30 years ago. That is, in my formative stages. Our son is the best son in the world. The very normal, active boy. What I see, what's on cable TV, <laughs> some of the movies, I mean, some of the violence in the movies are, that come into homes today. He's convicted of three murders, but authorities think he actually killed 36 and perhaps many more. That stuff is, I'm telling you, from personal experience, the most, that is graphic violence on screen. Changing his appearance like a chameleon. As it gets into the home, the children who may be unattended or, or unaware that they may be a Ted Bundy who has that, that vulnerability. I'm not guilty. <laughs> does, that, does that include the time I stole a comic book when I was five years old? To that, that predisposition to be influenced by that kind of behavior, by that kind of, of, of uh, movie, that kind of violence. <laughs> All right, Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy, here we are. Theodore Robert Cowell, as he's how he started life. The, the one and only. Just yeah. immediate thoughts on studying him. What did we use to study? We both read different books, which is perfect. Well, listen to we different did. books. Thank you, audible.com. That's right. For providing us with books that read someone reads to us. Right. And it'd be great if you would pay us for these mentions. I know, right? <laughs> Instead of us having to pay for your books. Right. <laughs> uh, I read... The Bundy Murders, A Comprehensive History uh, by Kevin M. Sullivan. And when I started it, I was like, damn, I wish I had enough time to listen to all three because he wrote three books about Ted and like each one got increasingly like more yeah. um, you know, specific. That's the thing too about doing this details. podcast is like sometimes there's somebody that I want to continue studying, but then we've got to move on to the next one. Like yeah. we get one week to do Ted Bundy here. Yeah. Granted, we didn't do an episode last week, so we kind of... May have gotten a head start. It was but, Thanksgiving, though. But the problem was, last week we planned on doing an episode, and we studied for someone else. Yeah. And like we we were all lined up, but I didn't get back from hunting. I just <laughs> I just went hunting, and it, I thought it was going to be a four-day trip, turned into a six-day trip. It happens. And I listened to an audio book on a different guy that we're going to be doing next week. Right. So we've like studied for we two both people. Did. <laughs> yeah, we studied. And then Mike was like, yeah. well, this is not doing this week since you just got back from hunting. We should have yeah. already recorded. Let's do Ted Bundy next week, and then we'll do... Right. The I-5 killer. little sneak preview for you patron people. That'll that's be right. next week's episode. Right. Kind so, of Ted Bundy-esque. Very. I think if there is a guy that's the most similar to... Yeah, for sure. To uh, the I-5 killer, it'd be Ted Bundy. We're kind of doing like three Casanova killers in a row, really. <laughs> right? <laughs> any, any three of these guys could have been called the Casanova killer. There's arguments. I don't know how, I don't know how much of a Casanova killer Ted Bundy was. People say he was, he was real uh, persuasive. I... I after studying him extensively, yeah. I disagree. Yeah, he had a lot of strikeouts, right? A lot of strikeouts. A lot of but people just dude he was, walked up to. Dude was just creepy. Yeah. He was just like, and I can tell, like when he's walking, yeah. any video I've seen of him, his his right. eye movements, his just, just his body language is just all no good. Like, right. if I'm a woman, I'm like, get me the fuck away <laughs> from this guy <laughs> immediately. Like, we're not going on a date. <laughs> no. Fuck if his arm's broken. <laughs> no. I have nothing to do with this guy. Right? Yeah. I, no, I, I totally agree. His eyes were always beady. I think people, like, they, 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 like the outward perception of him, that people that don't really, haven't really looked into him, looked into him, they just kind of like hear things about him and this yep. and that. It's that he was this good looking uh, Casanova type guy. Right, no, right. No, he just, he would hit women over the head. He would coerce yeah. him over to his car, hit him over the head with something. And yeah. They weren't willing participants. These weren't women who were interesting in, in, even interested in like one night stands and stuff. Like these were no. women who were just trying to help him with something. 
because he Being lied nice, to them, yeah. you know, saying he has a problem or whatever. Yeah. yeah. It's not like he was just overwhelmingly handsome and then they just like flocked around and followed him and shit. Like right. people portrayed. Not until not until after he was killed, everybody became obsessed and thought he was like this amazing right, right. great looking. I want to be with him and he's lovely. Yeah. Nah. Well, I feel, I feel like we have a lower standard for like really bad criminals, like what they can should look like. Right. I feel like if Ted Bundy never did anything and he was an actor, we'd be like, eh, he's like a C. It's like a C list actor. Right. You know, he's not a Clooney or a Pitt or, you know. Should we not- talk about the fact that there's a movie being made on Ted Bundy? It we definitely was, should. It was announced this year, and um, the actor who is going to be playing him, we think is all wrong. Yeah. I mean, not, I- that, not, that, not that there's anything wrong with him. No. It's going to be probably a bigger hit because he's in it, but we have a much better actor. Right. A much better actor. But who's but the guy that is picked to play him is Zac Efron. Zac Efron. You can see it's, a resemblance. And he's, he's a fine enough actor. Good-looking yeah. good dude. Maybe if they give him brown contacts. But no, we've got a guy that's... You need we've those got a guy dark guys. Who is but, already yeah. an actor. Yep. Who's been in he's movies you've heard of. Yep. And he's the doppelganger of he's Ted perfect. Bundy. He's, he's his fucking perfect. twin. Get your Google ready because you guys are about to agree with you us. You might have already heard of him if you're a yep. fan. Jesse Bradford. Yes. Of star, uh, swim fan fame. Right. Uh, <laughs> so, bring it on. Bring it on. <laughs> I think he was in Bring It On Again. I'm not sure. <laughs> he was the cool uh, brother of the, the Dude, brunette. he's fucking Ted Play Bundy. guitar. He's Ted Bundy. He's Ted Bundy. Dude, he's got the same dark brown hair, curly brown hair, yep. same brown eyes, same facial features, same five yeah. o'clock shadow. He's got the thin pointy nose. Thin pointy nose. Yep. Dude, he's him. That's him. He's I agree. he should be playing Ted 100%. Bundy. I think we need to start a petition. We should get Zach Efron out of there. We get that he's the bigger name, yeah. and he might bring in some like Efron fans to watch this. But right. dude, for true crime people, let's get a, a damn look alike here. Real... And this guy's also a good actor. There's he is a good actor. I think he'd be. I great. would argue better than Zach Efron. Better actor. Oh really? Yeah. Okay. I, I like... haven't seen him in a long time. So. Dude, his emotions in Swim Fan. He's. Yeah. He was legitimately scared of that crazy movie? bitch. <laughs> did he move you? No, I said, did he move you? Oh, he did. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, so. All right. So you so you want to talk about the case or? Yeah. Let's, you wanna... get, <laughs> let's get into to Ted Bundy. All right. The serial killer of all serial killers. I'd say he's, if you're going to, you know, we've, we've mentioned in the past, if you're going to immediately names that come to the top of your head when you think serial killer, mm-hmm. you got John Wayne Gacy, you got uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, and then there's Ted Bundy. Ted yep. Bundy's kind not of the rock star. Not necessarily in that order. Probably backwards. Ted Bundy's the rock star of them. Though. Yeah. Like got, the people that are really into yeah. true crime. I, I don't know. I kind of think like... But Ted, Jeff, Dahmer's and John, probably number one as far as like the like if you're going to just go up to a random person in the street, like name a serial killer, they're going to say Dahmer, Gacy. I don't... I think Ted Bundy's like... I disagree. Everyone, every true crime person's favorite, but... I don't know. I disagree. I think Bundy's going to be right there. You think so? Yeah. I do. I, I think he's gonna be. He's gonna be right there. He's gonna be one of the first ones mentioned. And after studying him, I, I when in, going into this, I knew the basic, mm-hmm. the basics on him. But he's just endlessly fascinating, and I want more. Even after a week, <laughs> and even after oh, so the book that I got, we didn't yeah. even mention it. Yeah, was the book on Ted Bundy. Oh, the book. It is. And rule. And the stranger That's beside right. me. Um, it's it's the one you see everybody posting it about. It, it, and it was a great book in an audio form. It was 19 hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very long book. Yeah. My book was like 10 and a half, I yeah. think. So. And it was very fascinating because well, Anne Rule, famous true crime author, um, this was, I believe, her first her first actual book right. that she wrote. Um, and she knew Ted Bundy. She worked alongside right. him. And she, she seemed- was a friend of him for over 10 years. Right. And even after he was locked up, was continuing to write to him, and he was writing back to her. They had falling outs, no doubt. Yeah. And throughout the whole book, she's unsure of whether her friend that she never saw a dark side of could have actually been 
the guy that he was... Wait, at the end of the book, she said she was still unsure? No, no. At the end of oh. the book, she finally came around and said, like, okay, I'm Christ convinced. Lady. I'm convinced, and, I, and yeah. I understand why he's being killed, and I think he should. And she almost actually testified uh, as a character witness against him at a certain point. Hmm. Which would have been would have been awkward for her as being a friend to go up there and say, I, I think he is capable to mm-hmm. stand trial for this. It was a question of whether he was um sane. Sane enough right. to to stand trial, yeah. And she was gonna go up as a character witness as a friend of him for a long time to say, Yes, he he's he knew what he was doing. Yeah. And he should be held accountable. Mm. But did he, Great he book. knew what he was doing, but did, could he control it? Great book, a lot of behind the scenes, a lot of stuff on the trial, a lot yeah. of um, a lot of stuff on him as a person, what she saw of him. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it was almost flattering in his sense. You didn't and like, it didn't go in detail on the crimes much, which I kind of wish it would have. Yeah. It was kind of lacking, but I'm sure your book did. So maybe we got a nice little yeah, balance it here. Pretty good detail because yeah. you said your book didn't really go. You you said you didn't know much about the trial and all that stuff. Right, the right. trials we should say there were several of them. Right. Different states. He was committing. He was committing murder in several different states, mm-hmm. and some believe that he killed a lot more than he's yeah, given upwards credit like for. One hundred and thirty, possibly. Yeah. At one point, the uh, an investigator came to him and said, "Is this number of? I think it was thirty six. They asked him, "Is this right. right?" And he said, "Add a digit to that, and you'll have it." And they were unsure what that meant. Whether it meant add a digit. Three hundred and sixty. <laughs> yeah. Does he mean add a digit to the end, to the beginning, right. just one more, like thirty-seven? Is it a what decimal? He... Did you knock somebody out really bad? Right. Oh, he did that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like... many of them. Right. Right. But uh, so let's get into his childhood, and we'll go through this in in, uh, in an order that makes sense. All right. Theodore Ted Robert Cowell was uh, his birth name. Right. He was born November twenty-fourth, nineteen forty-six. Um, he shares a birth date with. Actress Catherine Heigl, not a big fan. I heard she's a biatch. Oh, really? Yeah, I heard everyone mm. that worked with her just says she was a pain in the ass and oh. took herself too seriously. Shout out to you, Catherine. Yeah. <laughs> I loved I loved the movie Knocked Up, though. She was great great in that movie. But okay. she was kind of playing a biatch in that movie. Because <laughs> it was just natural for her. What, do you just play yourself? <laughs> right. uh, also, shares a birthday with Jimmy Graham, the football player for the Saints, or formerly of the Saints, now with the Seattle Seahawks. Not a big fan of him oh, either. Because he plays for my rival team. Right. And I don't like the Saints, so. Yeah. And I just think he's not that great. He's just huge. Oh. <laughs> just well. like reaches yeah. over the top of guys and just catches the ball. Right. Uh, and... Oddly enough, Sherry, the, Ted Bundy shares a birthday with my mother. No Lo- way. Lovely woman, yeah. Oh. <laughs> November 24th. Wow. So he does not to- deserve it. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> shout out to anyone uh, born on November 24th and shares a birthday with Ted Bundy yeah. if, you're, if you're listening. Congratulations. Yeah. Uh, he was born to Eleanor Louise Cowell. She was 22 years old, and this was in the 40s, and she was... Um, unwed when she had this right which baby. is very disgraceful then she got i guess um she met a guy who was a world war ii veteran this is right after world war ii i mm-hmm. think he was a sailor or something in the navy maybe and um sounds reasonable <laughs> got she got knocked up they didn't stay together right and she ended up in the elizabeth lund home for unwed mothers in burlington vermont because her family was not okay with what what happened they right. were not okay with this is like we said the 40s and unwed babies were not widely yeah. accepted That's now right. it's totally cool but yeah. after the uh, birth at the uh, unwed mothers in burlington vermont he would end up uh, being raised in his grandparents household but right. he was told that his grandparents were his parents right and his mom and, was a sister and it, that his mother was his sister now yeah. i've heard conflicting things there's times where he says that he heard uh, conversations within the household that led him to right. believe that his mother was or was mother was actually his sister yeah, and I, and I and I would guess that the grandparents probably gave her a lot of responsibilities 
over him to be a sister. Right. You know what I'm trying to say? Mm-hmm. Like, probably not to be a mother, but I bet she, she took a lot of the motherly duties. The official... I mean, she probably felt like she should have. The official story is that he believed that his sister was, or that his mom was a sister right. up until, like, he was teen years, like in 1969. Yeah. Supposedly, he believed that all the way up until... I'm sure he had his suspicions, though, for sure. Right. Um, and now there's also conflicting reports on the household that he grew up in as as it pertains to his grandfather. Mm-hmm. His grandfather, the, the the early story from him on his grandfather was that he was a, a jolly fellow, like almost like a Santa Claus type figure, right. like a great guy. His household was lovely. There was right. no, as far as we can tell, there was no brain trauma. This was at the a young early age. trial no story, right? Yeah, supposedly no abuse. Yeah. No, there was never any brain trauma. We've heard about yeah. with serial killers where you know the frontal lobe damage, no, none of that. Uh, no abuse in the household, supposedly, mm-hmm. until later in his final trials when he's trying to get appeals for from the death penalty. Right, and they started considering doing the insanity plea finally, which he never wanted to do right. all the way through. Um, he just played innocent the whole time. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when there was a character witness that came up and said that his grandfather was this abusive guy, uh, abused right. his grandmother, um, abused animals. Like cra- There's all these crazy stories about his grandfather swinging animals exactly. around by their tail. There was a story that he pushed uh, his aunt down the... She, uh, the grandfather pushed his aunt down the stairs yeah. to push Ted's aunt down the stairs. Yeah. And there were, that he would uh, abuse Ted as well. Mm-hmm. But what we're saying is you got to kind of take this... With take this with salt. a grain of salt because it came out in desperation uh-huh. at the end. It's like, yeah. why not just lead with that right. right off the bat? Like, how does that hurt your chances right. at the beginning? So you kind of got to you, you weigh the options here. Yeah. But, uh, but there are, like, my book passed it off as fact. Right. A lot of stuff does. Yeah. Now, Anne Rule, the whole book, like the first 17 hours of it, mm-hmm. um, anytime she mentioned his childhood, it was his grandfather and his grandmother were great. Um, obviously, okay. we're kind of hard on his mother for having him unwed, but they tried to keep it a secret because they right. knew that it would be no good uh, to have that out there because of the stigma back then. Like right. the kids were called bastards if they didn't have a father. Right. You know, if their mother had an unwed child, that was like it was you'd to protect get Ted on. and her. It was to pro- yeah, yeah, yeah. And so um, by the time he, there's also another crazy story that that came out. I don't know if it was later on at the same time that his, all the stuff came out of his grandfather right. as a character thing to him to make him look crazy. But there's a story that so supposedly when he was three or four years old. Um, and still living in his grandparents' house, mm-hmm. uh, living with his aunt as well. Right. Supposedly, his aunt was asleep and woke up yes. surrounded by knives. Yeah. And Ted was standing there, four, three or four-year-old Ted was standing there smiling at her. He was like, look, auntie, you're the joker. <laughs> <laughs> I could have killed you. I could have decapitated you. <laughs> yeah, just surrounded by kitchen knives and just, in her bed. Yeah, and little Ted is just smiling at her. Apparently, there was... Well, my book referenced other instances. Like, that was, like, the most extreme, but mm-hmm. there were times where he would just sneak knives in, like, random places near her. Mm-hmm. But it's funny that, like, he never did any of this stuff to his mother, apparently. Yeah. Like, he always held his mother to the highest regard. Even mm-hmm. when he found out that she was not his sister but his mother, he never treated her any different. Mm. But but, but he would talk aunt, to other people about it's funny how it, that he, he was... Con- he, that was the, wide, the widely accepted version of what went wrong with Ted... It may have been nature. He just he maybe he wasn't right. He was a sociopath or a mm-hmm. antisocial personality. Antisocial personality from the get go, or it was the trauma of finding out that he was an illegitimate child and lied to his entire upbringing. Yeah, that really seemed to get to him because even Ann Rule said that when they were working alongside each other, which we'll get to, it's later on in the story. But mm-hmm. just as a character thing for him, like what 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 might have went wrong um, is that it really bugged him because he was he was kind of a he. 
an elitist personality. Like yes. we'll get more into as well. Like he was very much about the facade. He looked though. down on anybody that wasn't successful. Um, he had this grandeur view of himself. He would have been a perfect son of like the Elizabeth Elizabeth Bathory, the blood countess. Like oh yeah, you know what I mean. Like he was an elitist. Like the the one woman that he like was infatuated with later on in the story was like this perfect. And all the girls right. that he killed were these she, beautiful college girls, like, wealthy families. Yeah. 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 And he always, I think he had this inferior mentality to from he the get go because he didn't live, he didn't grow up in a rich family. And then when he found out that he was an illegitimate child, yeah, that his mother, you know, had him and he didn't know who his father was. That's a big thing that can really yeah, mess like, with a man's yeah, psyche that's, that's is right. if they never got to meet, the, meet their father. And because I think growing up, you kind of look to your father as like that's who I am. Like yeah. that's that's who I want to copy. Mm-hmm. You know, like, that's my hero or whatever. Yeah. So when you don't have one, you're like, who am I? So yeah. you're kind of constantly searching for this for this path. And then you, you find out as a, as a and it's, then you find out as a teen that you were lied to by your mother, right. who you love, or yeah. your, supposedly your sister, whatever it is. You, you you know you find out your sister is your mother, and you were lied to your whole childhood. Right. It, that's got to be awkward, especially for someone mm-hmm. like Ted, who, like I said, is he he was an elitist, and when his mother ends up getting. We're about to get to where they, um, he and his mother end up moving away from the family. Right. Well, real quick, while we're still talking about the, the grandfather and everything, mm-hmm. how probable do you think it is that the grandfather was a good person and then Ted ended up so so twisted, man? Because there's obviously some psychological issues here. I mean, didn't his grandfather also expose him to porn at a super young age? <sighs> All the porn stuff, I'm not sure I believe either, too, because that came down in a time of... But depra- how do you explain this, though? How do you explain this? No, like his okay. upbringing porn, really wasn't that bad. Porn, I wanted to talk a little bit about because later on, the last, the final interview that he does, he did. Everybody's seen it. His final interview, the day he's about to be executed, like minutes before he's executed, like an hour right, before, right. whatever. He brings in uh, a pastor, right, mm-hmm. like a, a reverend. I think he was Mormon or something. Okay. And uh, the guy is t- known to be anti-porn. This pastor guy that he's talking to, and, <laughs> yeah, most of them are. And that's what the conversation was going to be about: how porn right. caused Ted to be what he was. He saw it at a young age. He used to find porn in dumpsters and whatnot with other kids in the neighborhood, and just like all of us. But did. But supposedly this wasn't just porn. Like this was, this was violent. But that, that like, shit didn't even. Ex- was, that shit was not readily accessible back then. It wasn't something you would find in the trash. Normal dudes, like you, would really have to go a long ways to get that stuff and to just find it. Like right. in the trash is not likely. You know what I'm saying? Well, like, from what I heard it, in in the book that I read by Kevin Sullivan, it was it wasn't that he found it in the trash. Like yeah. this is stuff that his grandfather sought out, really, and and had hid in in their garage or whatever. Huh. And then Ted found it one day, and then he just kind of like let him keep looking at it. He was just like, oh well, you found it now. So now another thing that could have happened was, and I find this more likely, these things that were there was these crime story, almost comic book magazines that you could get back then they were really actually kind of cool looking okay but like to a child they were pictures they they had these illustrations these really beautifully done illustrations of like women being strangled and and like stuff like that and they were the always beautiful women and and it was like the crime story in the end of the thing would be like this detective with a flashlight catching the guy strangling the woman or whatever right but all the pictures leading up to that were like women being strangled on boats and stuff like that i can see that an early Ted finding okay. these type of magazines. Maybe his grandfather had those. Possibly. Maybe somebody he knew had these detective magazines. If you saw pictures of them, a documentary I watched on YouTube had like pictures of these old ma- crime mm-hmm. magazines from the time in the fifties and sixties. Right. So you're I saying it would be very captivating to yes. a child, and it would look almost the, cartoonish, but and to a child with the right set of mm-hmm. 
whatever's going on in his head. If it, right. it, it, maybe ninety nine percent of children can see these and whatever, right. but to a young Ted, it might have just been the right thing. Kind of like Dahmer with the bones when his father brought the bones out from under the house. Yeah, and he just yeah. clicked. Yeah. It could have been that type of thing for for Ted. I don't think it right. was porn. I think it more likely to be something like those magazines. The, the violence seemed like what did it for him. Yeah, yeah. And another thing about Ted's psyche is that he was he was a we talked about him being an elitist, but he he loved possessions and objects and like maybe it had something to do with he didn't didn't have a lot of money growing up right but and he had uh I don't know like he loved objects and he wanted to possess things and that's what he ended up doing with women like he just yeah. wanted them like their body he didn't care if they were alive or not he just wanted to own them he wanted to own shit right well if I mean if they're not alive that's the ultimate ownership I mean, yes he can do what he wants with them yeah. maybe that was the the it's, drive but and supposedly they found some of his victims later on when they would find them, they would have like um, makeup that they didn't own. They would be wearing their heart. Their hair would be done in a different fat. Like he, would, yeah, he would change their rooms. Like some of the girls that he abducted from yeah. their rooms, like he would change their room to do something different, make their bed a way they never did, make them into the, his hang their idea, clothes up, make them into his yeah. idea of a perfect woman. And there's, right. we'll get okay. to like his first girlfriend had a lot to do with this later yeah. on. But we need to stick to or one more crazy theory that me and Lauren dismissed, but I think it's worth mentioning. Um, some people have thrown this out there that it could be possible that his grandfather was his dad. I mean, I don't believe it. Lauren doesn't believe it either, right? You no. don't you don't think that's true. I, that's the first time I heard it when you brought it up to me before. No, the show. I've heard it in multiple things. Okay. It's it's it is a theory that's going around out there. Now so. you look at his mother and he looks exactly like his mother. He obviously the strong genetics. And he looks carried, like his grandfather too, but it's his grandfather. He's a cow. Like, he's a cow. He's not a bundy. Right. His mom right where we're at in the story, his mom moves. Um, Louise, uh, they, the, uh, she moves to, uh, Tacoma, Washington. Right. And that's where she would meet a guy named Johnny Culpepper Bundy. You know, she, uh, she actually met somebody before Johnny. It was a very short fling, mm-hmm. but apparently it was serious enough where she changed his name. Ted's name actually got changed twice. Okay. I can't remember exactly what it was. It's very insignificant, mm-hmm. but this is how just on a whim, his mother was. Mm-hmm. Like, she moved, she met this guy, she was in love with him, changed his name, didn't work out, that guy left, Ted's still stuck with this guy's last name. Right. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. then she met Culpepper. So this, Ted's name actually got changed twice. So wh- think about what that does to your psyche. Yeah. It's like, oh, first I'm Ted Cow, and then now I'm Ted so-and-so, and yeah. now I'm Ted Bundy. It's like, who am I? Right. You know, it's no wonder this kid, this dude had multiple personalities. Like, yeah. It's unreal. Yeah, and so it was 1950 that she fled to Tacoma, and in 1951 she met Johnny Culpepper Bundy, who worked as a cook. Um, they got married, and uh, Johnny officially adopted Ted. That's where the Bundy name came from. But he was a cowl through and through. Like he looked like his mm-hmm. mother. He looked like his grandfather, as you mentioned, which yep. just brings up speculation about whether he there was some incest going on. But I mean, even if there wasn't, he could still look like his grandfather. Or he could that just makes look perfect like, sense. Or he could just look like his mom and his grandfather naturally. It could just yeah. Happen. That's what I'm yeah, saying. Exactly. It, yeah. Like if my son looks like my dad, that's there's nothing wrong. That's with normal. That's, yeah. Sometimes traits skip generations. Exactly. Yeah. And so maybe the guy that uh, his mother initially got pregnant from, the, the uh, sailor guy, just didn't have strong genes that passed on to Ted. He because right. if you look at pictures of his mom, even when she's older, man, they just got the same pointy nose. Like, yeah. The facial facial structure and, and everything is the same. Yeah. His maybe mother, by the way, stuck, he is a cow through and through, Lauren. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Ted Cowell, man, the killer. Ted, it doesn't have the same ring, man. Ted Bundy's just a great name. Mm-hmm. Um, Thanks, Johnny. <laughs> so Johnny Culpepper Bundy, his mother would marry, and she would go on to have four more children with this guy. And as we mentioned, Johnny would officially adopt Ted. Mm-hmm. Ted uh, would later go on to say that he didn't 
the guy was fine, Johnny, but he didn't respect him because he didn't make a lot of money. Like we talked about how yeah. Ted was always like an elitist. Like the yeah. guy was just, he just, once Ted went on to college and stuff, he looked down on this guy like he wasn't good enough. Yeah. Um, but it, always wondered about his real dad once he found out that he was an illegitimate child, obviously. Right. They had, they had what? They had two girls after, I mean, they had two girls together and then a son. Uh huh. And the youngest boy was named Richard, and Ted really took to him. Almost like a father figure, okay. because because you know, like you said, he mm-hmm. felt like he felt like Johnny wasn't sufficient enough. enough to be a male role model. Mm-hmm. So he took that on his own. So I wonder what happened to Richard because I didn't hear any more about that. I wonder yeah. how he turned out with Ted Bundy basically being his his main male role model <laughs> right. in his life. You know, right? Like how did that work out? Was Ted's like, hey, check out these comic books Grandpa gave me? Yeah. Like, <laughs> here's how you properly hit a woman over the head. How, yeah. Yeah. yeah, see that strangling technique? Right. You got to get both hands. All right. no, no. <laughs> You gotta take the front seat out of the Volkswagen. You gotta take, then you gotta get that out of there. There's not enough room. <laughs> but the fuel efficiency. Listen, when you're going in the mountains, right. you can't beat it. <laughs> you gotta offset the weight of the women's bodies with mm-hmm. the seat, the car seat. It's right. Gotta get, get the seat out of there. The car yeah. will still ride level. Yeah, that's what. <laughs> you don't want it to bring attention to the uh, the cops seeing the car leaning to one side. Right. 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 <laughs> um, now around this time, Ted's uh, in his teen years. You're talking the, the early '60s. He's he's starting to be known for stealing. He's all he was always into theft. Mm-hmm. Now there's nothing about uh, arson, which is a common theme with serial killers. Right. No arson, no brain damage. Mm-hmm. However, stealing. He was a klepto for sure. He liked to steal shit. Like I said, he, he liked to possess things, and he right. would later right. do that with women. Um, but he's also getting caught as a peeping tom. He loved to peep in windows, and this yeah. is where you see the. Yeah. He's starting to get this obsession. He's with, starting to feel comfortable at night too. Yeah. Nighttime was his was his time. He mm-hmm. would just go out, almost kind of like Richard Ramirez, yeah. just kind of stare in windows for a while, mm-hmm. watch people. Before he acted. And later on, he would do interviews and talk about how he didn't expect it to go to the next level. Yeah. But one day, you know, he just, he just went too <laughs> far like, one time, yep. and then he went even further the next time. And then yep. once you cross that line, there's no going back. And he talked about how, like, he would he would go into a house, and then he wouldn't do anything, and then he would leave, and it would take him months to recover from that. He'd be like, oh, yep. my God, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I need to calm down and mm-hmm. calm down. And then three months later, he'd be back at it. And then after that, he'd, he'd be like, a one further. month later, and then one week later... And then before you know it, it just escalated into more and more. Yeah. Ted would uh, graduate from high school in 1965. Smart, always smart, um, near the top of his class in high school. Yeah. Uh, I believe he'd end up getting a a scholarship and end up attending the University of Puget Sound um, at the University of Washington. Right. Before Before transferring. Yeah. Yeah. So he would go to the the University uh, of Puget Sound and then transferred to the University of Washington. Early on, uh, during this time, I know he was studying Chinese. Oh really? I don't know if that's widely known, but yeah, he was. I did not know that. He he thought that China it was kind of his his uh, his he had another set of um, philosophy where he was he was a Republican mm-hmm. all through. We'll get more into that. Yeah, but Very he believed political. that he believed that China was the future that they were going to someday be the powerhouse, right. and that we better start speaking Chinese. And he got really into it. and He was really successful at it. I think he got some like awards for for speaking Chinese in his really? early college years. Yeah, <laughs> did and not it, know that. Yeah. It's interesting, and that was part of like one of the things that attracted him to, uh, or attracted, made him attractive to Stephanie Brooks is like he's he's got this drive. Yeah. This girl that he meets, Stephanie Brooks, this is the one we've been alluding to. That was like the, his idea of a perfect woman. He couldn't believe. Right. And this is an alias, by the way. Uh, we know I don't know if her real name's out there. There's a multiple aliases. Like my book called her Carla. Okay, there's just different I things. Hate that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the stranger beside me, um, not Stephanie. She she called her Stephanie. Yeah. 
Almost this, this is girl. the most popular. Stephanie then, Brooks is the most popular alias. But then a girl that he ends up being with for a long time, um, right after Stephanie, Liz. who will who we'll get yeah. to, she called her Meg through the whole book. Like seventeen hours I'm used to her, her, hearing Meg, Meg, Meg. And at yep. the end she goes, I've been calling her Meg, but her real name's I'm like, God damn it. I'm like, I can't get Meg yeah. out of my head now. Her name's Elizabeth, right? Yes. Yeah. And so anyway, so Ted would drop out of school in nineteen sixty eight. Um he would end up re-enrolling soon, but during that time after he dropped out is when he would uh, get into his breakup with this girl, Stephanie Brooks. Now, he was infatuated with this girl. Mm-hmm. They would spend a summer or two together. He couldn't believe he was, she was extremely This is the attractive. girl we were talking about that came from a good family. Rich. Very rich, very driven, very yeah. focused. She had a bright future ahead of her. Now, she was going to college in Washington. That's where they right. met, and but she was from California, mm-hmm. and that's where her rich family was and all that stuff. Right. And uh, he, after she would break up with him, it was kind of like proof to him that he was inferior to her like he couldn't believe yeah. she was with them and then when she broke up with him he's like see i knew yeah. i wasn't good enough and it like this is another thing it's like between the illegitimacy yep as a child and then this it's like he was never good enough no matter how hard he tried right. i think is what really like and after, took him over the edge right and after her a, a woman of her status or whatever he did not want to go down yeah he didn't want to go down so it's just he and it's around the choices. same time. It's around the same time after the breakup with Stephanie that it's believed that he found out about the truth about his birth parents. Well, I mean, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if he didn't already kind of have hints, now he it's new. Now supposedly he, he saw time. a birth certificate from either his cousin showed it to him or he found it. Right. Something happened. Um, shortly after that, in 1969, he met a woman named Liz Klopfer, who was um, known as Meg in the book. Right. Uh, in the now, book that the, I read, Meg. I think, or Meg, you got me calling her Meg after one time. <laughs> I know. Fucking heard Liz my it's whole, an easy name, whole time. But uh, Liz? No, I think what attracted him to Liz, Liz was kind of a rebound, and she was not quite Safe. on his level yeah. from what I heard. Like she was a lot shorter as far as girls that he dated, maybe not quite as so, pretty, not quite as talented. Let's put whatever. it this way as infatuated that Ted was with Stephanie. Yep. Liz was say. that yep. infatuated with Ted. Yep. Liz felt inferior to Ted. And couldn't believe he was dating her. Right. Um, she found him to be really uh, attractive, which most women found, you know, when they got a, if they could get past the weird factor with him. Yeah. He yeah. had a weird vibe. Yeah. But he was an attractive dude and he was a chameleon like looking person. You might see a million pictures of Ted and he looks different in all of them. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, I agree. But for the most part, an attractive dude, except for the unibrow pictures. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, dude, you got one little razor, man. Just... <laughs> right. Um, but. It, they would end up spending a long, a long time together. They, yeah. they would have a stormy six-year relationship, um, and she would stay with him through a lot of allegations. She would mm-hmm. question whether he would end up being this guy that he's alleged to be later on. She put up with a lot of shit. She put up with a lot of shit. She suspected that he was seeing other women. He was. He was. And he was, she, she kept some, going back to Stephanie. Well, he, he was still obsessed with Stephanie while he was dating There was Liz. a point in the relationship she knew that. Yeah. Like, she would ask him, you know, hey, can we go to dinner tonight? You know, whatever. He's like, I got plans. What plans? I just got plans. Don't worry about it. And yeah. she knew he was seeing other women or, yeah. or whatever. Well, and Liz, she was just insecure. She just got she was. she just gotten a, a divorce, and she had a six year old yeah. daughter at the That's time right. who Ted was great to apparently, mm-hmm. which is crazy when you think later on he ad- he ended up abducting a girl about this girl's age at the time that he abducted her. This was many years later, but right. still, like it's just crazy. And we talked about that in our last episode yeah. how you just you could be cool to one kid and then just yeah. abduct, a, abduct a different. And Liz one. was totally comfortable with Ted around her daughter. Yeah, like she. She, she was totally comfortable. He treated her nice. He played with her. And well, the thing about Ted is, we talked about him being a sociopath, and and like, I I just don't know that he ever had this 
like a conscious as a like a if he was one of us, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I think maybe something happened in the early teens when he discovered his illegitimacy and all that. Like right. he just he's like everything my whole life's been a lie. Yeah. And then he just started to like imitate human beings at a certain point. He became like an automatron. Like okay. anyone that met him, he you you just they thought he was being real, but he wasn't being real. He just showed you what you wanted to see. Yeah, he he was a chameleon. And it, he looked like a chameleon. I hear that word a lot his, researching him. Yeah. Chameleon, chameleon, the many faces of Ted Bundy. Yeah. yeah. I, I agree. Just, he I could just, contort his face. I think he got it really, really good at imitating a person. And like he was really good at imitating whatever person they wanted him to be. Like yeah. with Ann Rule, he was a very... Like when she worked alongside him, which we're going to be getting to pretty soon, right? At the uh, suicide hotline crisis center, it was basically just a crisis center. Anyone that was going right. through something crazy uh, mm-hmm. could call in and they could get help, right? And working alongside Ted, she said that he was the most compassionate, like genuine. Like she could talk to him, and he would completely listen and give her great advice. And he would, on her birthday, bring her flowers, and he would send her thoughtful cards, and he would write poems for her. Yeah. Even in jail later on, he would send her poems and write her letters and how are you yeah. and all this. And she was like, he was like this throwback because during this time, there's a lot of dudes with, uh, you know, a lot of hippie dudes with beards and all, blah, 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 all this stuff. Yeah. Ted was like a well-dressed, clean-cut, like yeah. what your mom would want Parted you to on date. The side. What your yeah. mom would want you to date, like really respectful to women she said he was like overly like she never saw him like he was super what's the what's the like empathetic right empathetic but uh a throwback in the way to like the 50s the way men used to treat women what's that word almost chivalrous yeah he was like yeah exactly that's that was her um, view of him, and, and Anne she, is a, Anne was a little bit older than yes. him, so she really respected that trait. She was old him. enough to almost be his mother. And you know what? This kind of goes back to what we were just saying. Maybe he just showed Anne that because he realized she was an older, yeah. more respectable woman, mm-hmm. and he wanted her to see him as this chivalrous, yes, you know, kind of a old old soul type person. But that's that's my point is that he was just a chameleon personality. Yep. He was imitating what he thought people wanted him to be, but he didn't know who he was. You know. And then no. he had these impulses that he couldn't control that just got out of control at right. a certain point. I think he's just doing anything just to hold down the real To him. his professors, he yeah. was the perfect student to a lot of them, some yeah. of them. Yeah. But there were some recommendations that professors in college wrote that you can you can read, and they're yeah. just glowing reviews like, this guy, I highly recommend him for your university. I, I, I'm upset to lose him. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, and I think he was doing the same thing for his professors. He was being this brainiac, um, perfect student for them. Right. <laughs> but Absolutely. Just showing them exactly what That's they wanted to see. That's why this guy is so endlessly fascinating to me, man. Like, the, like you, you know said, what? the many faces of Ted. I take back what I said earlier. He'd probably be a great actor. I take it back. <laughs> Who? Ted Bundy. Remember oh. I said earlier, I said if he was an actor, we'd call oh, him like dude. a C-list. No, nah, he'd be like he'd be like a He'd fit right actor. in in freaking bullshit Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> They're all phonies just like Ted. <laughs> he'd be perfect for it. Maybe he wouldn't hey, have killed people. He would have gotten all the attention every, he needed. Doesn't everybody in Hollywood have a few scandals in their past? All right. We, we can't forgive this guy. Come on. All right. Like, <laughs> and so... Uh, yeah, so he met Liz in 1969. He then enrolled at U- uh, the University of Washington in 1970. Uh, this time as a psychology major, he was an honor student and highly respected by his professors. That's what we talked about. Um, and then in 1971, he started working at the C- Seattle Suicide Hotline Crisis Center alongside Anne Rule. Um, they made a great little partnership there. They would. They, she talked about how there was times where they they understood each other perfectly. Like right. Anne would get a call. Say Anne would get a call. Yeah. And this person was suicidal. Yeah. She would stay um, cognizant to this person and like 
talk him through it. Right. And she would be making hand motions to Ted, who would run yeah. and start Go looking. start his Volkswagen and be like, I'll be right there. Yes. Just come outside and I'll take me. care of your problems I'll for you. I'll take you to a place where you have no more troubles. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yes. No. Uh, she would make hand motions, and they understood each other's body language perfectly to yeah. where Ted would go um, use their software to locate the person's location and sent medical personnel there to make sure that the person couldn't harm themselves. That wow. type of thing. They had that that type of understanding for each other, and they would, um, like I said, so being Ted friends. knew where all these people who didn't want to live lived. Yes, that's great. That's great information. He was for him. stalking every one of them in his bug. He, <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. Honestly, we need to you change the know. creep. Vent. We need we need some uh, Volkswagen stickers now. <laughs> Although there is a time where he steals a van and tries to abduct a girl in a van. Oh, does he? This. Yes, it all comes full circle at a certain okay. point. All right. Yes. Um, so and then in. Uh, so, yes, they worked alongside each other. That's where Ann met him, and they would end up communicating all the way through up until his death, pretty much. Right. After graduation in 1972, Bundy turned to politics as a Republican, a staunch Republican, all the way through. <laughs> right. He joined Governor Daniel J. Evans uh, during his reelection campaign, and he would go traveling around to doing doing his speeches he loved the politics vibe he lo- and right. because he well, was his, a fake person well you know he, he no. loved he loved seeing a politician at work telling the crowd what they want to hear yeah, and then yeah, going yeah. to a different city with a different set of views and telling yep. that crowd what they want to hear he loved that no do you know what Ted's number one job was for this guy what it was to go to the democratic rallies he was going to the Democratic rallies and spying oh and blending God. in, it's acting the perfect like job. he would even wear like the pin for the Democratic <laughs> guy. I can just see him there with his clipboard. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's sitting right. there writing stuff down. Yeah, he says he's going to do this. Right. Yeah, he would do that. Yeah, and so it was, he would blend in there. He, his job again, yeah. the chameleon. His job working for the campaign was to blend in. He would yep. record the speeches a lot of times. Right. And he was he was working his way up in the. Um, in the uh, Republican Party he was. scene. Yeah. And he was also, during this time, he was broken up still about the breakup from Stephanie yeah. while dating uh, Liz. Liz. Yeah. But he's he's trying to build up his resume to be respectable enough to hopefully get back with Stephanie. Yeah. It's kind of what's going That's on That's always right been in the back of his and mind. And it fucking works. It does. It works. He gets to the point where Stephanie's still checking in, yeah. and she starts hearing and seeing that he's this important guy. Uh, and hey, and, are you successful yet? Right. No? Okay, I'll call you tomorrow. I'll call you in a week and see how you're doing. <laughs> If at a certain point, he gets to the point where she's impressed enough. Yeah. They uh, they start seeing each other again, unbeknownst to Liz. Right. And at a certain point, he gets engaged. He proposes to Stephanie. Yeah. She says yes. And then he <laughs> says, fuck you, bitch. No, fuck you. I'm out of here, bitch. <laughs> he got what he wanted. He made her feel like shit. I'm going to be the mayor of this bitch. <laughs> I thought that was so great that he got this, this freaking stuck-up girl back. And then he said, nah, I'm, I'm good. I got what I wanted. <laughs> oh, my God. Right? Oh, so great. Yeah. I don't even know what time, that, what, like where we're at in the timeline with that. But I know it happens somewhere around here. It does, yeah. When he's doing well in the Republican Party. Yep. He gets her back. He he's like even driving like the um, the governor's car around or something like somebody high up in the. He's driving their car, picking her up, right. taking her out to these fancy. He was uh he was a guy that would like loved like Shakespeare and and like he would put on this grandeur vibe. Like he, when he right. takes Stephanie out, it was perfect his perfect opportunity to like show her this great wine that he found. And he mm-hmm. was that type of guy. If you yeah. hear his voice talk, he some people say he almost sounds English. And is you're like where did, that on where did you get this like accent from you know what i mean like he because i think subconsciously he saw that as like a more respectable and more sophisticated yes way that's the way he viewed himself which it sounds more sophisticated than the than the american he had a great accent, voice so dude his, yeah. His, yeah for sure it we could have had him on the podcast man if he was still here oh he'd, he'd make a great radio personality yeah, he would 
man, he could change minute to minute. He could he could make you believe that Bring he believes head, right? staunchly in this <laughs> viewpoint, and then the next commercial break, he come out with a different one. <laughs> he would just he would be doing a two person podcast. It'd just be him, right? <laughs> exactly. What do you think, Ted? Well, I think this. What do you think, Ted? Just, I think it's jolly good, <laughs> <laughs> right? <clears throat> So he would end up uh, attending UPS in the fall of 73 and then dropped out um, by April of 74. I think he got what he wanted out of Stephanie, and then he was like, I don't need to keep up this yeah. great school right. scholar thing. Uh, eh, right. Not for me. I'm going to go kill women now. They right. look like Stephanie. <laughs> <laughs> that look like Stephanie, right. <laughs> so this is this is around when Ted started to kill. Um, it's it's complete, not completely un... It's, it's not really known... Completely, who his first victim was. Some people say mm-hmm. it's this. Some people say he, th- he killed when he was fifteen, and he killed an eight-year-old girl. That there was a yeah. eight-year-old girl who's still an open case, right? Who lived near where he lived when he was fifteen, and yeah. it seems to fit. But he, he knew the swears family. it wasn't him, and he has no real reason to lie. At the end, he could have said, "Yeah, it was me," but he said it wasn't. And but I, here's the thing, though. I just don't. I don't believe you that have he an, her. You have an eight-year-old girl on your resume. That does not look good. That doesn't sound like yeah, something Ted Bundy would admit to. Yeah, and even in the end, he really didn't like talking about the younger girls mm-hmm. that he abducted. No, that's what I'm saying. Like eight. That if he did do it. That's not something he but would But I just ever don't know to. that his psyche was at that point when he was 15 yet. I think I think it was it started developing in his early 20s. It had to get to a certain point. Well, I've heard us. I've heard a slightly different theory about that. Like maybe he abducted her and was fooling around with her because she trusted him because they were their families were friends mm-hmm. and things. And he accidentally may have killed her. Maybe mm-hmm. lost control, yeah. impulses. Maybe some of these images he'd been seeing in these comic books. His it whole kind of fits. It kind of fits. I mean, some of the bigger like Gary Ridgeway. Mm-hmm. Um, he killed when he was a young when he was a young teenager, and yeah. then he didn't kill again until many, many years later. So, I mean, right. it, it, it's definitely possible. It's kind of like it's sitting right there, and yeah. then that urge is down deep. Just like, uh, what was it, the vampire at Dusseldorf, mm-hmm. uh, Peter Curtin, who yeah. drowned those two kids just yeah. on a whim. Like, he didn't plan to drown those right. kids, but they were like, the oh, they're there, let's itself. just hold yeah. them under. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder if that may have been it, and then he just, like, he was still unsure about who he was. He could have even blocked it out, Kids have, for all we know. I think kids all they all go through a certain stage when they're real young of like curiosity to reality. Like, does this really happen? I've heard about these things. Like, what really mm-hmm. happens if I kill someone? Maybe if you're yeah. in that darker, like if you're a Ted Bundy when you're younger. Like my like this is my my example of when I was a child. Okay, I I didn't know how real reality was as far as like. I'm told a weed eater can hurt you, right? Or like this yeah. or that can harm you. Right. But I almost have to test the water. So like when yeah. I was when I was like five years old, my mom was out weed eating in the yard and I stuck my hand in the weed eater. Nice. And I still have the scar from it. And my mom felt horrible like she did it. Yeah. And it was completely my fault. I ran by and stuck my hand in it. Acted like I was playing. Nice. I stuck my hand in it just to see what would happen. And I got a face with reality. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is just a darker side for Ted or Gary where it's like, would this will a person really die if I hold them underwater? Or would it... Yeah, you know, I some that's just a, the way my head works. Man, I'm just thinking. No, I, yeah, maybe I that's, that's what was going as a on in psyche to explore that type of thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a similar um, thing with the treadmill when I was like three. Mm-hmm. My parents would tell me I was over at my grandparents' house, and my let's see if my mom's full of treadmill. shit. <laughs> yeah, I had a treadmill, right? Yeah. And and they were like, "Don't touch it, whatever. No, never touch it. Don't play on it, yeah. whatever." And I turned it on. <laughs> and I got on it, and I fucking face planted. I got on it, you know. Of course, I'm gonna put it on full blast, you know. Right. And I jumped on it and just poof, busted my head open. I needed yeah. like ten stitches on my forehead. Yeah, yeah. Like, I guess my parents were right. Yeah, I guess they were right. Shit, I guess I was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Lesson learned. Hey, 
Now I know. Exactly. Start slow. And Ted knew, <laughs> okay, I guess this little girl can die if I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I strangle maybe, her. Maybe, maybe, man. I've heard about it in these crime magazines, but yeah, that's, that's real. That's, that's brutal, though. Now, Ted's earliest documented murder was in 1974. Um, however, he claimed at this time that he had mastered the necessary skills to leave minimal evidence. Mm, already, huh? Yeah. Okay. Now, so we're going to start getting into some killings. Now, as all big-time serial killers that have a high body count, we kind of have to rail through them. It's unfortunate for the victims that we don't give them 10, 15 minutes each right. to get to know who they were and all this stuff, but that's just the nature of talking about a serial killer that killed anywhere from 36 to... Some say in right. the hundreds. Right. Um, but these are the known victims of Ted Bundy. On January 4th, 1974, 18-year-old Karen Sparks, a dancer and student at University of Washington, was asleep in her bed. Ted entered the basement apartment. Now, we talked about him spying through people's yep. windows and stuff like that. I'm he was sure also, he watched her multiple... Because I think... Was, wasn't there someone else that lived with her and had stated that they had seen something outside the window, but they... They just wrote it off like it maybe was wind or tree I'm not sure. or whatever. I think I think it was. I think she was living without a roommate or something, mm. and they had thought that they seen somebody after because later they told the police, you know, after she was abducted or whatever, yeah. but told the police that they thought that they'd seen someone standing outside the window a couple okay. nights in a row or whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, if you see something multiple times. You might need to, right. say, if you see something, say something, people. Yeah. He's very uh, opportunist, like R- Richard Ramirez, where if you left an opening, if you left a window yeah, yeah. unlocked, or you left something, like with the uh, Omega murders that we'll get to in right. Florida, right. there was a, a, a malfunctioning lock, a, a lock to their sorority room where it was well, supposed to be locked, and the, mal- the lock was broken, and he utilized yeah. that to get in. Yep. Um, they were getting it rekeyed. They were mm-hmm. kind of in the process, but... So none of the um, the sorority girls' keys were working, so they just left it unlocked all yeah. the time. Yeah, but we'll get to that. This is his dipping his feet in the water, potentially type of like brutal attack in the middle of the night on a woman, where he crossed that line. He's been watching yeah. them, watching women through windows and whatnot. This is where he crosses the line. Right. He entered the basement of Karen Sparks, bludgeoned her while she slept, then sexually assaulted her with a metal rod that he took from her bed frame. Um, she was unconscious for 10 days, but ended up surviving with permanent disabilities. So he crossed the line. He didn't kill this one. He could have. She survives. A month later, this is where we get to the monthly killings. He yep. was killing yep. at this point every month or assaulting every month. Right. A month later, on February 1st, Linda Ann Healy, another University of Washington student, and this one's crazy. She was a moving radio reporter. Uh, for like, she did like weather reports for skiing and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, she was kind of a big really, personality yeah, in this of, area. Yeah, she's she had the the great cute voice on the radio, mm-hmm. and it may have been where he got his infatuation with her. I can see kinda, because he was into skiing. Yeah. At one point, he told uh, he told someone he knew that he was going to move to Col- he was going to Colorado for the winter to to become a ski instructor, and like he took some, he yeah. had brand new skis all of a sudden that he probably stole. Right. So like he was into skiing. I think skiing was kind of a status symbol then too, especially oh, in no that doubt. area. No doubt, rich people. Right. Like he yeah. wanted to be that, and that's you could see him with a sweater tied around his neck. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. I'm skiing. Yeah. So she was a, a kind of a well known kid that was or a girl that was doing ski reports and stuff mm-hmm. like that on the radio. Well, she didn't come into work one morning. She's she's always known to be steady. Like five thirty right. a.m., she'd yep. be up. She'd be there to do the the mm-hmm. radio show. Um, didn't come in. Wasn't seen this at so dinner crazy that night because when her five thirty alarm went off, she also had a roommate. I mean, mm-hmm. most of these people did. I mean, it's college town. Yeah. Okay, so her roommate like got so annoyed at her alarm consistently going off, and she yeah. was like yelling at her, like <laughs> yelling at her from the other room. Mm-hmm. And she finally gets up and goes in there, right? Mm-hmm. 
and opens the door. The bed's made. Everything looks good. It goes over there, cuts the alarm off. Yeah. So now this is even more time that's being bought because nothing looks out of place. Yeah. And then, then the phone rings at the at the apartment, and it's Linda's work. And they're asking her, they're, and then uh, her the roommate picks up the yeah. phone, right? And she's like, well, Linda's not here. She's already left for work. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, she's not here. Mm-hmm. And then and then even then, she didn't think nothing of it. She thought, well, maybe she stayed the night somewhere yeah, I think else. Dinner, or maybe like she didn't show up to dinner for her parents. She didn't show up to dinner for her parents. And yeah. then that was the last straw. Apparently, she did every night that, you know, that night of the week or whatever. Yeah. She was always there. Yeah. And so when her uh, room was inspected further, they found blood on her pillow, mm-hmm. and they found a nightgown, a nightgown hanging up in her closet, I believe, that had blood right. stains on it. And they still didn't suspect foul play because of how it was cleaned up, because she was also known to suffer from like bad bloody noses. So that's yeah. what they assumed happened. Like she was sleeping on her back, she started bleeding, oh. it was running down her face onto the pillow, and then on her nightgown, yeah. and then she hung her nightgown up. Why would you hang your nightgown up and not wash it, though? Like that's why would kind of why a, would someone why would someone come in harm her and then hang her blood nightgown up too? Like, you know that's, that's just true. Also that's strange. true. It is. It's very strange. That would throw me off for sure. Mm-hmm. If I'm like, okay, well, why would? And he made her bed. Yeah, but she never made her bed, so that was kind of a mistake he made. Okay. So, yeah. Well, he had abducted her. He'd broken in, struck her mm-hmm. while she slept, which is kind of a Ted Bundy thing. Yeah. Um, knocked her unconscious, abducted her, took her to his Volkswagen. I'm assuming. Right. We talked about his Volkswagen. He had like a little. Um, some say brown, but we saw pictures of it later at a museum. It looks very light tan to me. Yeah, kind of a lightish like tan. off-white almost. That he would remove the passenger seat from yeah. as a way of stowing away women's unconscious bodies. Right. Easier. Super creepy. Mm-hmm. And he loved it because he was um, he wanted a fuel-efficient vehicle because he hated stopping for gas. And if you're a killer right. who's killing here and there, it makes sense. That's a trail. That's a. And also, it's, it's, it was uh, more convenient for him while traveling to not have that seat because now the body is basically laying in the floorboard. There's not an yeah. unconscious body slumped over in the side. Mm-hmm. Like most, like a lot of killers did, like Randy Kraft, like he was known for that. Right. Like that's how he got pulled over. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's kind of suspicious when you got a body banging against the window as you're going down the interstate, no doubt. you know? No doubt. And so. the, the fuel efficiency, here's an example later on. We talked about maybe him being attributed to more um, killings and they're trying to connect things like, okay, on the on the books, we know you killed these, right. but what about this one? There yeah. was one that he admitted to later when he was on death row or when he was about to be executed to killing someone in Idaho, which was a state that it wasn't, mm, wasn't yeah. believed that he had killed anyone in. Right. But he talked about how, when, I believe when he was in Colorado, he made a trip to Idaho specifically to kill someone. And okay. he made sure that he had enough gas to get... I think it was Pocatello that he went to. Right. He said he killed someone in Boise and Pocatello. Okay. And they yeah. ended up connecting one of the two. He said he killed two in Idaho, and one of the people, they found a missing person, mm-hmm. a girl that fit. It was at the same time frame, and they ended up giving the credit to Ted killing her right. um, later on. But yeah, that was an example of the fuel efficiency of the of the bug. He went from Colorado to, to a town in Idaho and back on the same tank of gas. It was like 350 miles or something that it was able to do. And so like he didn't leave a trail where he purchased gas on a stolen credit card, which uh, he would do a lot of times. Yeah. You know, um, known for stealing everything. Like oh, she, yeah. At a certain point, after one of his jail breaks, which we'll get to, <laughs> he's just stealing. He's stealing credit cards. He's stealing purses. Yeah. He's stealing. That's how he's getting around. No yeah. cash, but just charging up everything on people's cards. It's nuts, man. Yeah. So then again, on a, the next month, March 12th, um, 19-year-old Donna Gail Manson left her room, her dorm at Evergreen State College uh, to attend a jazz concert. Now, this girl was known to be kind of a drifter sort. She was mm-hmm. um, she was known for depression. She often hitchhiked. So it wasn't surprising that she wasn't seen for a little while. Right. 
he had abducted her um, and killed her. And uh, Donna Manson was never seen again. Shortly before his execution in 1989, he confessed to murdering Donna. He claimed that her partial remains had been discovered in the Taylor Mountains. That We'll talk more about the Taylor Mountains in Washington State. In 1975, I think they found a femur bone that they couldn't accredit to anybody. Yeah. There was like an extra femur bone, and I think that's the only thing that was left of Donna. A lot of his victims, he would leave in the mountains, and animals would get to him and whatnot. Um, On April 17th, Susan uh, Elaine Rancourt left an advisor's meeting at Central Washington State College, never made it home. Um, On March 3rd, 1975, police searching around the Taylor Mountain area where he would take... He had kind of a little dump site there and also Mm -hmm. kind of a a macabre-like place he would go back right and visit his victims and maybe have sex with their corpses he was into necrophilia a lot of times he would decapitate them too and bury the heads because he felt i guess he felt like that was the only true way to identify them maybe with dental records or whatnot but he would yeah he would bury the heads yeah sometimes he would play with the heads a little bit too yeah one uh, one reason why we don't use a Wikipedia as a, um, an immediate source is I went there this morning just to look around after we'd already gotten all of our research and everything. Oh, God. Right on the front page, it says, several skulls were found in his apartment. I'm like, I think you got this mixed up with Jeffrey uh, Dahmer. No. Dude. This is, yeah, <laughs> no. No. So don't, don't trust Wikipedia, guys. All right. Uh, then a month later, May 6th, Roberta Parks left her dorm at Oregon State to go have coffee with friends but never arrived. From later interviews with Ted, it seems as that he raped her, and then several hours later raped her again before killing her. He only confessed to his to her murder shortly before his execution, after everything had been exhausted. We'll talk about how many stays of execution he ended up getting, how many times he appealed, and his trickery in the courtroom yeah. that kept him alive for many years after when he should have been killed. But in the end, when he knew it was all over, he started confessing to some of these murders finally. And yeah, this, this yeah. was one of them right here. On June 1st, Brenda Carroll Ball left Flame Tavern in Burien, Washington, and was last seen talking to a man with a sling on his arm. Right. I'm going to talk about that for a minute, all the different ways that he would abduct these girls. It was very cunning, clever, and just evil. Just like, it's it just was. so sad because you you tend to even like these girls a little bit more. Just the fact that they were like the kind of women that, they were the kind of person yeah. that, if someone needed help, they were willing to do it. Like that yeah. just makes it even worse. Like he's preying on like good people. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, and then some of these women just didn't want to say no. They just felt uncomfortable. They didn't want to seem, you know, rude. And Rule made the case that, uh, and we were talking about this before the show started. She made the case that you could, on almost all of his victims, you could connect. Uh, you could connect them together, and that they were going through something on the day that they were abducted. Either they were going through some depression that was pr- talked about by their friends, right. or like two of the girls, their um, fathers had had heart attacks recently. Mm-hmm. Like they survived, but they were they were dealing with that. Like one of the right. girls had gotten into an argument with her father, and then that day he had a heart attack and was in the hospital, and that was on her mind when Ted abducted her. Yeah. A lot of these girls, um, they'd either just gotten in a breakup with their boyfriend and they were upset about it, right? There was something that was going on with them during the time that he, where they were just their guard was down, Absolutely. and they were like they were upset. They're walking their minds on something else. This guy comes up to him with a sling on. He's carrying a fucking big, big luggage thing that he can't, and he keeps dropping it. Yeah. Ted would do that. He would carry a, a carry big, like a big thing of books, a big He'd suitcase. Books and He'd shit. carry like a big suitcase and be fumbling around a parking lot with it <laughs> with a freaking sling on. And these girls would, or like crutches. That's right, what it was. Right, yeah. He wore crutches with a cast. Yeah. Um, and he got it from like doing some kind of like medical aid thing. He was going through some like yeah. training for like, anyways, he, and he took all this shit from like a medical facility. He had crutches with like the stuff to make his own cast. He'd have like a oh, fresh yeah. cast on. Yeah. And that's it what was kind of more like a, what do you call it? A splint or a, 
a sling or a splint or yeah like a splint like he would have the metal part that goes uh-huh. on the bottom and then he would wrap it with like ace bandage yeah because that threw a lot of women off because right. they're like he's not even a real his cast. cast look it wasn't real it was just like it looked like just a wrap uh-huh. you know and then he had his arm in a sling yeah and then sometimes he would even like if he would walk up to him and, and nudge him with the arm with the arm that's in a sling or yeah. point them in the direction or Dude. grab their arm with that arm that's in a sling and they're like whoa whoa and that's my doing? point is that I, it, now that I've studied deeply into it, when I if if you hear someone say, "Oh, he was charismatic and he would just lure them to his car," no, sometimes or, he was pushy. No, he Man. was always pushy. He was always pushy, and the only girls that he was able actually successfully abducting were girls that had their mind on something else that weren't fully in tune with their yeah. surroundings. Because so many girls, after girls were coming up missing, would say, "I saw this guy." He was strange. He came up to me asking for help. I got a weird vibe from him, yeah. and I fucking ran, or I walked yep. away, yep. or I avoided him, or There's I started some... going back to his car with him, and he just he just gave me a weird vibe, and I left. There's yeah. a girl that um, we'll talk about that testified against him, who jumped out of his car and and started running because he was just not something was not right from the get go. Right after that was when he was pretending to be a police officer, and she still was like, "There's no, you're not." Oh, yeah. Um, oh yeah, that That's was another a, that thing. Was a crazy would, one. That was another thing he would do. Yeah, he would pretend okay. to be a police officer. Yeah, but like he would even like some some of the girls that would refuse right away. Mm-hmm. He would like they would try to go walk around him, and he would cut them off and like just stare through them. Like that's a lot of the girls that that. Uh, that would later like yeah. go to the police and, and report this weirdo that's been walking around the campus doing this right. stuff. They would say, yeah, like he, I saw him, like he was staring at me as soon as I came within view of him. And he asked me for help with this, and I just felt wrong about it. When I tried right. to go around him, he would like cut off my path to go around him, and then yeah. I had to like juke him to get by him. And like that's just, it's just that's what he, several women said that same thing where he would he would go to like he would ask him for help, and they would yeah. say no, and then he would start cutting off, and and then they would have to like make this weird movement to get around him, and like I'm so glad I got away from that guy. Well, he was, and then they would find out one of their friends got abducted by yep. some guy with crutches or whatever. And like that's the guy, that's the guy, right? And they'd and see like sketches of this guy, and they'd be like, that's him. And he would obviously make a spectacle of himself because there were plenty of uh, people who testified and heard actual conversations of him. So that means they were in like like at the lake or at at parks and stuff. Like they they had to been zeroing in on him because he was giving them an eerie feeling. You know how it is? Yeah. Like when you see somebody at a park, it's like that gives you an eerie feeling. You're and they just walk up to another stranger, you're kind of watching them. You're just like and you're kind of zeroing in, even yeah. though there's other things going on. So that means for these people to have these actual word, you know, verbatim mm-hmm. conversations stuck, that they tested stuck in their head. That this guy. guy stuck yeah, that's right. It stuck mm-hmm. out to them and it's it gave more people an eerie feeling than it didn't. Yeah. Like people, like you said, they try to make him out like this huge, suave, charismatic guy. Everybody loved him, but really, in reality, probably more people were put off by him. Yes, he he just he, he knew was it creep, was man. he knew it was a numbers game. He yeah. knew it was a game of averages. Exactly. And if he asked enough people, eventually somebody, and he would not leave until yeah. somebody went with him. Mm-hmm. And that's why he was seen so many times, like in this instance with Brenda Ann Carroll or Brenda Carroll Ball, um, who he got from the the Flame Tavern. Um, she, I believe she was the one that went to a concert or something like that. And she was trying to get a ride home from a musician. And then, um, he wouldn't give her a ride. He was going the opposite direction and she was in the parking lot and she was seen getting into a light brown VW bug with uh, a man with a sling on. And later in 1975, her skull would end up being recovered from the Taylor mountain dump site, which we talked about. Right. Right. And so she needed a ride. Maybe that's the only reason she got in. She was also kind of known to be a drifter, I believe. Um, she would take often rides from people and this and that. So either they were distracted that day or they were just kind of known to be too trusting of random strangers. Yeah. But you know? I mean, I think a lot of people were pretty trusting of strangers, but 
and that just goes to show how creepy he really was. Because I mean, well, this is the early seventies, so like serial weird. killer, the term serial killer hadn't even been found yet. It hadn't even been. Funded. It should have been. It should have been. <laughs> but this was the early. This is when they were really starting yeah. to kick off. Like seventy four, we talked about was the year of it's fear. A, so we're right yeah. in that right now. But it's like, I think later in the seventies, girls were yeah. much more preached to like be careful, weary of strangers, and that this and that yeah. because of guys like Ted Bundy, right. Um, there, there was one girl a month up until that point, up until the point we're at now. June 11th, wow. University of Washington student George Ann Hawkins disappeared while walking in an alley between her sorority and her boyfriend's dormitory. Now, I saw a video of this this alleyway. Have you yeah. seen it? Freaking crazy. He, there was like this, a 30-foot window of darkness where yeah. she was going from building to building in an alley, and somehow he must have hit her over the head in there. That's the only thing that no, makes sense. No, he, he led her back to the parking lot where his car was. <sighs> So check this out. So she is in the alley, right? Mm-hmm. And she's talking to someone on the second story balcony. Yeah. So one of her friends about a Spanish. Her friend test watches or her something. walk off. Yeah, he lets. Well, he watches her walk off until she hits the darkness. Yeah. But while they're talking, they hear somebody in the alley. Like his, the, the friend later testifies. He's like, "Yeah, I heard someone like laughing. Oh my god! Like in the alley." And the only thing they can put together is like he was just so excited. He was like, "This is perfect. She's by herself. It's yeah. dark. Like I'm, I'm definitely. This is going to be a home run, right?" Yeah. And he just kept glancing over there, and they didn't see anybody. Yeah. And then you just let your friend just like walk over there to this, you know, maniacal person just laughing behind a dumpster or something. But anyways, he he caught her walking that way, and yeah. then changed directions and was like, "Hey, my car's parked over here. Could you help me? You know, I can't quite, I can't start my car or whatever because my, you know, my right arm's broken or whatever." Right. And so she walked back by the same dorm, and her friend had already went inside. It was late. It, nobody saw him walk back, apparently. But there they was, had to have p- passed right back through the apartment where the balcony was. Yeah. There was a story that uh, in Anne Rule's book, and I can't, uh, forgive me, I can't remember which victim it was, but there was there was a woman that supposedly, or maybe she got away and this was her story, but like supposedly um, he had disabled her car. She went out to get her get into okay. her car and he had disabled it and he came over acting like, oh, I can give you a jump or whatever. Yeah. I don't have any jumper cables. I have them back at my place. Oh my god! So if jump in my car, we'll go get the jumper like, cables. No, you go get the jumper cables. I'll wait here. <laughs> That's just like the the level, the extent that he would go to, like the level, the level of creeper, okay. creepiness that he was capable of was just staggering. And he was yeah. playing on their their you know their goodwill of other human beings, believing that wanting to believe that this guy is sincere. Yeah. It, here's my thing, Lauren. Okay, I'd like to hear your take on this very quick. Okay. Yeah. Before we get too far, so. Nine times out of ten, he would bring them around to the passenger side, right? Mm-hmm. And then before he opened the door or whatever, he would hit them, right? Yeah. He would strike them. He had a crowbar. Uh, right. One, he in, would hide the crowbar somewhere around the house. In one instance, I mean, from, the car. from his own words, during an interview with uh, Keppel, who yeah. was the lead investigator during the Green River Task Force. He right. was on the Green River Task Force, later goes down to Florida to talk with Ted on death row, about to die. Okay. And tries to get some information that might be helpful, and also try to get some information out of Ted mm-hmm. that people wanted to know. And when Ted was talking to him, like real quiet voice, he's so creepy. Yeah, I know. He's I, talking I about uh, a certain victim. I can't remember which one. And he was asking, "Okay, so you you, you got her to walk back to your VW with you, right?" And he's right. like, "Yeah." And then how did you get her in the car? And he said, "Well, I struck her over the head." And he said, yeah. "With what?" And he said, "There was a crowbar right. that I had leaning like against the back of my car." So. Yep. He would get her to walk over there. Maybe he got her to look at something and turn away, and then he would mm-hmm. knock him out from behind. Well, a lot of times he would give them the keys to unlock the car. Yeah. Okay, so here's my question, though. Here's what I was getting at earlier. Nine times, I mean, I'm pretty sure his windows weren't tinted, okay? We saw the bug. <laughs> look in the fucking car. Where are you going to sit? 
Right. There's no seat in there. Like yeah. that should be a red flag. Well, right if off he is bat. just getting, sometimes he's just getting them to carry whatever to the car and open the door for him. Maybe they're not planning on taking a ride with him. But there were numerous cases where it was always, you know, ride with me here or ride, yeah. me, or you need a ride home. Right. Well, the thing Look about in the, the car, it's a fucking Volkswagen Beetle. It's a bubble of windows. Look, there's no fucking seat in there. Well, the thing about the bug is, it's it's easy to pop that seat in and out. So maybe there's times where he had the seat in, times where he didn't have the seat in. You know, depending on what oh. he was, what what's gig he was running that day. What, so what, what do kind you do? Like whack him, take the seat out, leave it in the parking lot. <laughs> no, probably leave it back at his place. He was renting but rooms at college saying, uh, during right off of college dorms all the time. And, right, but regardless of that, so there's so the seat's not there when the girls walk up to the car is what I'm getting at. Okay, but that maybe that day he's running the book scam where just bring the books back to my car. Maybe on the day where he's running a scam where it's like I need you to ride with me somewhere, he has the seat in that day. Like it just depends on whether he's bringing his crutches or his freaking sling okay. or his, his okay. goofy bag that he's whatever he's if he's pretending to be a police officer that day, he might have a seat in. Okay. You know, depending on what freaking outfit he wears, <laughs> you know, all right. whether he has a mustache that day or not. Right. He, dude, he's running all kinds of different scams on him. Okay. Anything he could do to get him into his car, whether they're knocked out or they were conscious. I want to know where that seat is. It's not in the car in the museum. There were stories that were super eerie that he was during interviews with Keppel later where he talked about um, the one that he knocked out and uh, outside the car, got her in. She like woke up on the drive and started talking like she thought he, w- he was her Spanish teacher. Like she had a Spanish exam the next yeah. day. And she and started like, talking in Chinese and she, she started, was like... Oh my God. <laughs> no, he said that she was like, she thought because she was so out of it that yeah. she, she was doing like studying for her Spanish exam and started talking to him about, about that. It's just like, oof. That and had to have her out been... Again and, that had to have been the girl we just talked about. I think so, yeah. Because she was talking to her friend about the Spanish test. Yep. She was super nervous about it. Yeah. Because it was so the exam Georgia was Ann tomorrow, Hawkins. and she had been out partying. Yeah. Yeah, and she wasn't ready for it. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to reassure her. Well, not Ted. Her friend was trying to reassure her, like, oh, you'll be fine. You know, you got this. Get this. During this time, during these, appear- the, during these disappearances, Bundy was working at the Department of Emergency Services, a government agency involved in the search for missing women. Of course he was. Where else would you Wolf in sheep's, sheep's clothing. That's this right. Guy. Yep. Many faces of Ted. Here's where he met Carol Ann Boone. She was a single mother of two who had already been divorced twice. Now, remember that name, Carol Ann Boone. Would, yeah. Would later mother she pops Ted's back child. <laughs> spoiler, spoiler alert. alert. <laughs> Crazy. Right. Um, on July 12th, Janice Ott, a 23-year-old probation caseworker, and Denise Marie Nunsland, a 19-year-old who was studying to become a computer programmer, became Bundy's next victims. Before he had always abducted, burglarized at night. However, this time he approached both women at a state park within four hours of each other. He gave both women a a similar story about needing help unloading a sailboat. Now, he'd never owned a sailboat, but he'd rented them Mm -hmm. and and drove, like, I was going to say drove around, but (laughs) sailed around. Yeah. Um, And so he's wearing his arm sling, and he he goes up to him along the beach and asking if they can help do this for him because he, he yeah. obviously can't push his boat out with, with a sling on his arm. Right, right. Um, the encounter, this encounter left many eyewitnesses and detailed accounts of the suspect because he'd approached we a bunch of earlier. women and they felt weird about it and they wouldn't do it. But yep. these two, for whatever reason, accepted it. Maybe yep. they were just a little nicer or, like we said, more trusting or maybe they had something else on their mind and they were just like, you know, caught off guard. Right, right. Um, the police in the Seattle area uh, released a flyer with a description and composite sketch to local television stations along with the name Ted. Yeah. Because he was giving he these women name. the name Ted, probably assuming that they were not going to be around to tell anyone anyway. Yeah. That um, shows you how confident he was in that his that his little story was going to be a success. Right. 
because he felt like, oh, if I just, like, man, I just tell them my name's Ted, they're going to be dead anyway. But then he got rejected by all these women that he said his name was Ted to. Yeah. And so now the media has, the media and the police have something to run with, and the police are getting, they put out a, a tip line, and they're getting flooded with calls. Everyone who knows someone named Ted thinks that it's, it's, that it's them. Yeah. <laughs> they have over 200 people on a list that have had multiple mentions uh, from yeah. calls. And he's driving like the most popular car of the time. Yeah. So there's probably plenty of Ted's that drove Volkswagens. Yeah. <laughs> and had a broken arm at some point. Right, right. Um, he, th- this list of 200 suspects that had multiple calls, Ted, mm-hmm. this, you know, if, if your name got more than one call, you'd end up on this list. And there's right. 200 of them, supposedly. Ted Bundy was one of them. He'd yeah. get, he, a few people were a little like maybe suspicious. One of them being his girlfriend, Liz's girlfriend. So his girl, his, his longtime girlfriend at this point, yep. he's in a steady dating Liz. Yeah. Her Liz best, is still on the back burner here. She has this best friend, and I, I can't remember her name, but um, Anne Rule talks about her a lot in the yep. book. She's very suspicious of, and, and it's a little, it may be believed that uh, Liz thought she was just being a jealous girlfriend. She was uh, not dating on at, at the moment. Right. And she right. was one of those types that like, I don't, I don't like your boyfriend. Yeah. And so like Liz was kind of like brushing it off. We never first. go get coffee on Saturdays anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah. So her friend's just like, just think about it though. Like all these things, because there was some things about Ted. Now yeah. her, her, her best friend that's, that's <laughs> talking to Liz about this, yeah. she had a weary feeling about Ted because one, one time. It was it, it was in uh, she was hanging out at Liz's house and she yeah. caught Ted in the backyard just acting weird like in the middle of the night she walked out there and he was like just walking around he's like out there swinging a crowbar practicing yeah he was <laughs> no. she just got a weird vibe and he couldn't explain what he was doing back there yeah. he was probably peeping in people's windows or something yeah most likely she got a weird vibe and when Liz started really thinking about things yeah she started to kind of believe her friend and she would end up calling she would be one of the callers that would call yeah on several later on. Several occasions, she would start to suspect him even more. But right. there was things that she would later on tell the police that would end up really indicting. Yeah, at first it. she was just making like little anonymous calls. Yeah, like I don't know I, if I it could be anything. Felt guilty. Yeah, I think she probably felt guilty about giving up Ted, but at the same time she felt an obligation. Yeah, so she was like, eh, if nobody knows it's me. It won't. It won't be so bad. There but. was obviously things we've talked about that she couldn't explain with Ted. How he would always just like disappear for. A week here and a week there, yeah. wouldn't call. He would keep strange things in his possession, which yeah. we're about to get to during his first arrest. Well, in Kevin Sullivan's book, it said that her friend was always on her about it. But like you said, mm-hmm. she might have wrote that off as jealousy or yeah. whatever. But it wasn't until a coworker approached her with the flyer and was like, doesn't, look at the doesn't damn your Ted look exactly like this and drive a Volkswagen? Yeah. And he's and then he and then in the flyer it said maybe pay maybe passing himself off as disabled. Mm-hmm. And she remembered Ted had crutches in his mm-hmm. room. He has like, She's like, why does he have crutches? He's never been on crutches. And at this point, she'd been with him for five years, I yeah. think, five to six years. And she'd seen some other things, too. Um, in dating Ted, she'd seen that he had like... Uh he had a crowbar in his in his Volkswagen all the time with like it was like wrapped. It had it, he he would have had things, a grip on it, had yeah. a tennis racket grip on it. <laughs> he no. he would have things that could be used as weapons that would have like hand grips on them. No joke. Like, yeah, yeah. And he his excuse to her was that you never know when you're going to run into a riot that you got to break up because he hated all these protests that were going on <laughs> during the '60s and '70s. Yeah. And he was a like we said staunch Republican, and he's I'm going to break if you if you're blocking the highways. We got this shit going on nowadays too. Yeah, yeah. He's one of these guys that would go there and try and break shit up. He really would. So it was believable to her yeah but at the same time she's like i just don't i don't know so she starts calling and later on like over there breaking up riots only hitting women yeah (laughs) later on the police would end up talking to her and get and finding out some very 
interesting details about Ted behind yeah. the scenes, like this, the weird sex stuff we'll get to. Mm-hmm. But like there were some things about him checking her out in the middle of the night under the sheets with a flashlight, just staring at her body for weird reasons. Yeah. Um, uh, wanting to do... Uh, He's um, like, oh, I wish you breathed less. Right. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't doubt it. Stuff man. like that. It's yeah. creepy as hell. Bondage. She, uh, yeah. He wanted her to do bondage once. She wasn't into it. She's a very, you know, normal girl, which is not yeah. Ted's But forte. at the same time, we we talked about how fascinated she was with Ted. She she really wanted to please him, too, yeah. at the same time. So she was willing to overlook a lot of this. There was one time, and she also noticed his his theft. It was another thing that was she she found weird, is that he was dishonest at times, where he would... She would know that, like, she would find something that had been stolen, and like, she'd know that Ted s- stole it. And uh, at one point, there was something he, he either stole something, something um, he stole something, and she confronted him about it. And he said, "If you tell anyone, I'll break your neck." Okay, is something he said to her. So Might it was be a, a little bit flag. of a red flag, yeah. Maybe, maybe. And he also told her that she'd be a lot prettier without a body, just a head. Oh, okay. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's like. Could you part your hair in the middle? Thank you, and... <laughs> oh, thank you for saying that, because we, we quickly... We glazed over that. We glazed over the fact that it is very, very eerie when you look at just like, uh, uh, like the uh, overall a collage, if you will, of yeah. his victims, a collage. Almost all look the same. Dark brunettes, part down the middle. Yep. They all look like his ex-girlfriend. Uh-huh. Who he never felt good enough until he got her, and then all of a sudden he was yep. too good for her. Stephanie Brooks, yep. Stephanie Brooks. They did. And like, do you think like, you feel weird at all if you're Stephanie? Like, you feel guilty at all? Like, he's taking out his frustration from me on these girls that look like me. Do you think that maybe she she shouldn't feel guilty? Obviously, it has nothing. It, I think it's not her fault. But at the same time, you yeah, you know how you give yourself put guilt on yourself for things, right? Like, maybe, I, I don't know. She can't. If you I see mean, all these I'm pictures sure of girls that look like you and they're dead right. now, like you got yeah, that that that's got that's got to be strange. Just picture your wife goes rogue. You you divorce her and then she starts killing guys that look just like you. Mike, <laughs> would you feel the little? Guilt? She kills the property brothers. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, she that? kills Jason Sudeikis. I was gonna say Sudeikis. She kills Sudeikis. <laughs> uh, so the the two that he got uh, on the sailboat scheme, they uh, their bodies were discovered off a service road just two miles uh, east of where they disappeared by two hunters. Um, this was on September sixth. They were found. There were other bones at the site that Bundy later identified as George Ann Hawkins. We talked about the, the femur bone, I think. Or, right. Um, six months later, students from Green River Community College discovered a skull in the Taylor Mountain. The area was taped off, and an additional three skulls were found. Um, yeah, there was some volunteer group that like combed the whole area. Mm-hmm. It's like a ton of teenagers and adults volunteered, and they were like on hands and knees, like finding pieces of bones and fragment that animals have spread all over that area. Yeah. At this point, we talked about the uh, list of guys. They're still, they still haven't like zeroed in on Ted on the Ted Bundy yet. Mm-hmm. They're you know he's just another Ted on this list. And then when they looked in, when they get the calls, they look immediately into the backgrounds of these people. And he didn't. Right. There's nothing about his background that no law school student. Yeah, suicide hotline, missing right. women, and even his girlfriend <laughs> that's calling in is kind of like I don't know. I just have to felt like I should call. Well, maybe it might be him. I don't know. Right. Um, these the skulls that were found up in the uh, Taylor Mountain were Healy, Rancourt, Parks, and Ball. Donna Manson's remains were never found. Um, now we'll go to Idaho, Utah, and Colorado, where he killed more. In yes, August of 1974, Ted received a second acceptance letter from the University of Utah Law School, and he'd been trying yeah. to get there. Well, the first one he received, he just kind of blew it off, right? Uh-huh. Or he didn't he didn't register in time. Yeah, or something he got distracted with. Uh, I think killing women or something. Yeah. and he didn't do it. So okay, this is his second letter. He got admitted again. Okay, 
So with many uh, all these letters of recommendations from his mm-hmm. his professors, but he also he also got declined from a lot of schools. Mm-hmm. This was definitely not his first choice. Like he applied for schools in California, Washington, all over the place, but he only got accepted in Utah. Right, twice apparently. He would end up moving to Salt Lake City uh, and immediately began to struggle in his studies. Like we talked about, he's a little distracted. The new murders, yeah. the new murders uh, in these areas started a month later. However, these were not discovered until Bundy's confession. On September 2nd, he raped and strangled an unidentified hitchhiker in Idaho. We talked right. about that one. And they, they connected him to that through gas receipts. That was like one of the times where he was using a, um, a credit card. Okay. And they connected that through a gas receipt. But because it was believed that he, 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 doesn't, he wasn't connected to this murder for a long time because they thought, according to Liz, that he didn't leave until September 3rd. Mm-hmm. But actually, these gas receipts showed that he was right in that area on September 2nd. Mm. So I don't know if she was trying to protect him or she just didn't remember the exact date mm-hmm. or whatever. But yeah, the, it, it matched up perfectly according to his travels and like where he would have been when he left and everything. It would have been right on right on point to kill that That's weird because the part that I, we talked about earlier that I said that he said that he went to Idaho and he loved the bug because he could go there and not have to purchase gas and then yeah. come right back. Well, he may have got a gas receipt. Um, in Washington, though, I'm oh, okay. saying he could have fueled up in oh, Washington yeah. and then he hit the road. Mm-hmm. See what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, on October 18th, 17 year old Melissa Ann Smith and daughter of the middle school police police chief disappears. Um, she was last seen last seen leaving a pizza parlor. Her naked body was found in a mountainous area near where she disappeared. Nine days later, a post mortem examination brought to light that she may have been alive for up to seven days after she was abducted. Whoa. Not like him to usually he would he was more of a what do they call it not a process killer but a, a result result killer, killer where yeah. he he just wanted to own their body yeah and it wasn't about torturing them or anything like that right um, maybe she just lived through lived through the beating for a while I don't yeah. know that's that's awful October thirty first Halloween uh, Laura and I aim also seventeen years old went missing after she left a cafe just after midnight. Her naked body would be found nine miles away on Thanksgiving Day by hikers. Who's hiking on Thanksgiving? It's <laughs> a good day to hike. Eat, <laughs> eat a big meal and go burn some calories. Oh, is or it? burn some calories and then come home and eat a big meal. Mm. Both of these girls had suffered through beatings, rapes, sodomized, been sodomized, and then finally strangled to death. Then on November 8th, we get the first time where he impersonates a police officer. Oh, yeah, he's getting creative here. Yeah, so uh, Carol Durant was working at the Fashion Place Mall in Murray, Utah, when she was approached by a man who was claiming he was an officer, he gave her the name Officer Roseland and asked her to mm-hmm. asked her to accompany him to the, the uh, parking lot. Right, because her car had been broken into and she had to identify any items that were stolen. Or right. Now, it's it's funny because it's like you wonder if she was distracted as well because if someone just comes up to you and you go, uh, is that your car in the parking lot? That's uh, It's, you know, the blue, blah, blah, blah. It's like, how would he know who drives what? That's true. He must have seen her getting out of it, right? Or something yeah, that's not referenced in anything I could find as to what did she say? What kind of car is it then? You know, or whatever. Well, no, he he brought up what kind of car she oh, drove okay. and said okay. that it had been uh, broken into in the parking lot, but she didn't connect the dots. Like, why does this pr- random guy who I've never met know what kind of car I drive? Just because he's a police officer, he knows right. Apparently, he had a badge too, because at one point she asked for identification. He just yeah, very like a fucking a dollar badge. store plastic badge because yeah. he probably one of those stickers he stuck it on the inside of his wallet. Yeah, because she said that he <laughs> literally just flashed it for like half a second and she couldn't even really see it, but right. it resembled a badge somewhat. Yeah, 
And so he's, she's reluctantly following him to the parking lot, um, and he was telling her that she needed to file a report at the station when she uh, realized that they were not heading to the police station. So he got her into his car. Oh, yeah. Um, wasn't he brought her to her car and the car wasn't even broken into? Like it was, it looked totally fine. No, and she's yeah. like, no, it's cool, it's there cool. Was like, I'm, wrong with I'm fine. Car. I don't know why we're what's going on here. My right. car looks totally normal. All my stuff's still in there. Right. And he's like, no, 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 come with me. We're gonna need to follow a report. And right. did she question about the beetle though? And didn't he say there was something? Oh yeah, because it's not a police I know, car. There's a just... scene in the movie too. I don't know if it's word for word, but I, I watched a scene from the movie and it's he said something like. Oh yeah, the department's making budget cuts. Oh, sometimes we have to use our own vehicles. Like really, budget cuts. Oh, really? Right. Yeah. And so driving in his in his bug, she starts realizing they're not going towards the police station. She knows where it's at, and uh, she starts getting fidgety, trying to get out of the car. He right. handcuffs one of her hands, and then they get into a struggle. Right. And in the struggle, he ends up handcuffing the same wrist twice. So she she's got both handcuffs on Dope. one wrist. <laughs> Right. Damn it. <laughs> At which point she was able to open the car door and make an escape. He didn't do right. a William Bonin, man. He didn't make right. it to where once you close the, the passenger door, it can't be opened from the inside. Oh, uh, yeah. That's a mistake there. Yeah. You should put the child lock on there. Right. You probably didn't think you... about that in the old bugs. Yeah. Um, she then went to the police and reported this encounter. So she was one of the survivors, one of the people that made it out. That's right. And probably the most important one to this point because... She's rather than just seeing a guy trying to like coerce women in parking lots with slings and stuff, she actually right. was abducted by this guy. And a lot of women who encountered him and lived underwent some sort of trauma. Yeah. So it was hard for them to remember, you know, what he looked like. But with Carol, it wasn't like that. They, uh, she had a clear the police look. actually didn't they um, didn't they hypnotize? I think that this is one of the girls that they hypnotized. There were several occasions yeah. throughout the book that Anne Rule talked about. Um, survivors or right. near misses with Ted where they the police would bring him in and, and have a hypnotist um, get a clear recollection from their memory, like bring them oh, back right. to that spot right. and get a great composite. Like there was composites, like you talked about with uh, his his girlfriend's friend and how she's like, dude, look at this picture. Like there was yeah, great composites out of him <laughs> during exactly this time. Like him. Right. Later that evening, um, he's back at work again going, you just think like after a near miss like that girl could jump out of your car and be right. like, you'd probably take a break for at least a few days, right? Like the average person. Well, but the, the, the rush was not satisfied. No. You know what I mean? Right. He still got that hankering. Yeah. Later that evening, 17 year old student, uh, Deborah Jean Kent was leaving a high school play when she disappeared. I think this is the one where he was at the high school walking around like the play area, and like he, mm-hmm. at one point, I think he approached like one of the coordinators of the play that the school play that was going to go, and that was one of those instances where he tried to cut her off. As she, he just like was asking, he randomly went up to her. She's busy running around oh, trying right. to organize things, right. and he walks up to her and he's like, "Oh, I need some help outside with my car. Can you help me real quick?" And she's like, "I'm busy." <laughs> what like, the fuck? Yeah, I'm. I'm, I'm a, I have so many things to do right now. Right, and then <laughs> when she tried to walk around him, he's cutting her off, and she yeah. kept seeing him in this thing walking around trying to get people to come help him at his car. Right, and then. Sure enough, he did. Uh, well, he was able to get 17-year-old Deborah Jean Kent to leave with him. Uh, many of the uh, students were able to give a police description of the man, um, and also the key that unlocked the handcuffs that were put on Carol Durant was found at the scene. So he left his his handcuff key uh. there. So they, they're starting to connect. Like these are all the same person for oh, sure. Yeah. Um, although Ted now sat near the top of the list of suspects. This Ted, not. Just any Ted, but this Ted right, Bundy right, right. <laughs> sat near the top of the list of Ted's for the growing homicides. There was no real evidence to link him to the crimes. Now he's got heat on him in Utah, so he decides to right. go to Colorado. In nineteen seventy five, he shifted from Utah to Colorado 
to avoid the police. Um, and on January 12th, a registered nurse came named Karen Campbell disappeared while uh, walking to her room at a ski lodge. This one was crazy. So, like, she's in the room with her family, right? They're right. on a vacation. They're at this ski lodge. They're all hang- – well, no, what it was is they were hanging down in the lobby of the hotel, like, I think just having drinks with friends and stuff. Right. And she remembered that she had a magazine up in the room that she wanted to bring down. I don't know if she wanted to show the people or whatever. Yeah. She walks back up to her room, and on the way to the room, like in the hallway, she's That's runs where he in, approaches her, right? Runs into Ted Bundy. Yeah. And somehow he's able to get her outside to her car without being seen. He felt really comfortable at a ski lodge, too. I'm sure he had numerous excuses and could make really good conversation right. here. So wasn't he a really good skier as well? I don't know if he was a good skier or not, but no. he definitely acted like he was. Yeah. <laughs> he told he was, people he was, but he was, I don't know if there's any evidence <laughs> of this. There's no video of him just carving it up. <laughs> He's like Harry on Dumb and Dumber. He probably just bought some skis. Oh, dude. Bought all the cool stuff. Right. Just walked around. <laughs> Those are your skis? Both of them? <laughs> cool. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So um, she would be abducted. She would uh, found naked, be found naked a month later on the side of a dirt road just outside of the resort. And these things, like, the police were able to connect him to these resorts and stuff because he would keep, you know, he would charge rooms and he would keep, yeah. like, pamphlets from the freaking resorts oh, yeah. and things like that. And then later when they would search his, his apartment, they would find this kind of stuff. Right. Um, she had been beaten to death with a blunt object, and there were numerous cuts on her body from a sharp weapon. Um, that was probably from the ice pick? Yeah, he kept cuts, an ice right? pick on him. I don't know, man. Just, I don't he know what he... He didn't, wasn't typically like a knife no, user, No, yeah, though. no. He, Never he, heard of him using a knife, really. Yeah. He was more of the blunt object to the head, and then maybe he used the ice pick later on. I'm not sure. Yeah. Then uh, three days later, on March 15th, ski instructor Julie Cunningham, she's 26, she disappeared while uh, walking from her apartment to meet a friend for dinner. So he's just waiting, you know, walking, like yeah. waiting in dark shadows for people, to, these women, to be alone. Right. And either just approaching them and getting them back to his car or it's clubbing crazy. them over the head with something. It's crazy how many women he snatched just that were just running a little short errand, maybe running mm-hmm. to the bathroom by themselves. It's just a small window yeah. that, that many people don't think as an unsafe situation. Right. It, yeah, it, like the dude's husband at the resort, his wife's just running up to the room to grab a magazine. Like right, inside yeah. the resort, like you'd think she'd be totally safe, right? She's right. a guest at this place. Like one of the girls he got from the lake, remember? She was just going to use the restroom. Yeah. She was there with friends. People, she was the people close to numbers. The, the people close to these girls were just dumbfounded. Like the one walking yeah. from uh, building to building in that alley. That's right. a little bit sketchier because it's an alley. Alleys just bring kind of a whole set of right. views upon them. But the, you just saw your friend. You expect to see her in the morning. She's going from building to building. There's like a 30-foot yeah. dark window where she could be yep. snatched up. And it's like Politics. stuff that like... Mothers preach to their kids, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." There's 30 feet. I can right. see the building, mom. <laughs> I <can> see the... <laughs> right, and you're gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's all it takes. Yep. Then on April 6, Denise Lynn Oliverson, 25 years old, disappeared in Grand Junction near the Utah Colorado border. She was biking to her parents' house. Her bike and shoes were found nearby. So abducted off wow. the roadway while riding her bike. Yeah, he's back to like once a month. Once here. a month, and even sometimes three day windows like the. The one at the, the ski lodge and then the other ski instructor. Right, that's right. That was three days, and then we got a month gap here. And then May 6th, 12-year-old Lynette Don Culver of Idaho. This is the one I was talking about where he drove to Idaho just to kill. Right. Um, she was in Pocatello, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, 12 years old, like we said, this is the youngest that he's gone thus far, and it wouldn't be the last time he would go as young as 12 years old. No, it's not. Um, she got onto a bus. Uh, from school, she was right. in middle school. Got on, boarded a bus at Hawthorne Junior High School, bound for Fort Hall, and was never seen again. Yeah, never made it home. I guess he caught her off the bus. We're guessing, Maybe yeah, the bus that, parked at a 
at a neighborhood street corner and on her walk there, maybe he got her or something. Yeah, police uh, investigators initially believe she ran away because, I mean, this this wasn't where Bundy was known to be at this time. He oh, just right, drove over right. to Idaho, so it was just like kind of unrelated, they thought. you know. And this kind of happened every time he went to a new state. Yeah, and you don't know how much Idaho investigators even knew about Bundy. Right. You know, he's a big deal in Colorado and, and maybe even Utah at this point mm-hmm. and uh, Washington. <laughs> but, right, right. But in uh, Idaho... I think they didn't know the wiser. They got their own set of problems to deal with, their own oh, yeah. their own crimes to deal with, and all of a sudden this girl comes up missing. And then he would later uh, confess to Lynette's murder before his, his execution in 89, so held on to that information for many years. Wow. Four, so yeah, there's, 14 a, there's years. a lot like that where they had no concrete evidence to tie him to them, I mean, without his confessions. Yeah. This one, it's, it's a little different, too. It said that he drowned her and sexually assaulted her before throwing her into a, a, a nearby river. That's the first case where we heard of him drowning someone. Then uh, June 28th, back in Utah, he uh, abducts Susan Curtis from her campus of Brigham Young University, BYU. This was the the last murder that he confessed to before his execution. Um, her remains were never found, though. Some of these girls, mm-hmm. like, he would confess to it, and he would try to tell them, like, a general area, but... Yeah. I mean, they couldn't find it because it would be in some woods somewhere. Right, and, and he wasn't... It's been so long for he him. He didn't typically and, bury all the remains, either. Right. Or if he did bury anything, it was usually very small. A lot of times, like we talked about, animals would get to his victims. Yeah, that's what I mean. They would just get spread out. Yeah. Now, here's where the police start to make some connections here. Because of the murders in Washington State were still unsolved and had ended as abruptly as they started, they teamed up with the King County Police in Oregon to use the computer to compile a list of suspects, inputting overwhelming amounts of data from the tip hotline, eyewitness accounts, and the known description and car of the suspect that the suspect drove. So they're starting to connect these different states. They're going, okay, yeah. he, they're the one once a month in Colorado. And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden we get girls coming up missing in Utah, not in Colorado. Right. So they're starting to connect all these dots and they're seeing that all the descriptions from witnesses are the same. These right. guys freaking wearing casts and stuff, driving a freaking bug. Right. And the different uh, states investigators are starting to come together now. And also that accent that he talked in. Yeah. Right? I tried to really hear it in some of his later interviews. I, I think he kind of dropped it after a while. I don't know if it was part of his act or what. Yeah. Or if like he was trying to Well, he always had do. a grandiose voice, like a voice for radio or something, like old school. Like yeah, he did, he did Very clear and concise it. and like slow talking. Yeah. You know, John, like it's... Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a douchey, like self-serving type voice where it's like <laughs> you're waiting for every my every word. He, right. He cl- It's like he closes his eyes and thinks about like... How can these feeble-minded people understand what I'm about to say? <laughs> let, me, exactly. let me put it in layman's terms for you. Right. Um, yeah, it does. He's and got that condescending tone. And it's gross in the end in his, in his um, final um, interrogations with Keppel where he's, yeah. he's like having to bring these old murders back up. Keppel's right. trying to dig them out of him, and he's like, he's cringing at the stuff that he did. But it almost feels like he's doing it as to try and put out the vibe that he's human. Yeah, it's like you don't believe that he actually feels that disgusted by what he did, but he's trying to put this appearance that like oh, it just hurts so much to bring this up. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like bullshit, dude. Like you did it. Yeah, it hurts on. you. God damn. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like try and stop trying to act like you have remorse. We know you don't. Right. Like, right. I don't think you ever did. Somebody that kills once a month, man, you just don't have remorse. Yeah. I mean, it may not be a choice that you made to not have remorse, but you don't have any. Right. Now their list of names. The, the the Ted list, mm-hmm. Bundy, Ted Bundy was the one that had been coming up the most yeah. and fit the most. He he just started to they started to connect too many things, and he became the main suspect. Oh, yeah. He's the number one seed right here. Yeah. And then on August 16th, 1975, 
Bundy is cruising around in Salt Lake in a suburb of Salt Lake City right. in the early morning. So it's still dark out, and there's a police officer, a patrol officer, who's observing him cruising around. And this is a neighborhood yeah. he's worked. He's like, I don't recognize this vehicle. I don't know why it's up in here. Right. And so he uh, gets behind the car, which then turns off its lights. And it's 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 Ted Bundy in his in his VW. No, and starts to flee <laughs> starts to flee the the patrol car. Officer eventually gets him pulled over and noticed that the uh, Volkswagen's front passenger seat had been removed. That's as he's walking mm, up, he's saying, "Okay, awkward. that's a little weird." Um, searches the car, finds a ski mask, yeah. um, crowbar, with, with Ted's handcuffs. Consent, by the way, with Ted's consent, yeah, searches the car. Crowbar, pantyhose, handcuffs, the whole killer kit. Ski mask, yeah, the kit that's on Google Images. Ice pick. Um, Okay, but initially mm-hmm. this this uh, patrol officer thinks that it's it's burglary tools. Right, brings him in on an arrest for uh, some some kind of a burglary, attempted burglary type of thing. Right, where it's like we know you're gonna commit burglary if you haven't already. <laughs> yeah, brings him in. Um, he had, but I collect serial killers. Yeah, and his, his and Bundy's excuses for like the stuff that he had was so stupid. He said that he found the handcuffs in a dumpster, <laughs> and that he was going to put them in his curio cabinet or some shit. It's trash day. I'm just seeing what I can find. Right, <laughs> and that the uh, ski mask and the pantyhose with the eyes cut out on them were just to keep warm when skiing. Oh, of course. Well, it's a ski mask. What do you mean it's yeah. for skiing? Those people actually wear those skiing. All right. <laughs> Yeah, so they bring him in, and then uh, once in the police station, Detective Jerry Thompson started to connect some things. He said, you know, there's something not right about this guy. He remembered a suspect and a car description from the no- November uh, Durant kidnapping. We talked about the girl oh, that escaped. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. And then that's also, where he posed as a police officer. Yeah, and he remembered the name Ted Bundy from Ted Bundy's girlfriend, uh, Liz. Klop- Liz Klopfer, yep. calling in. And uh, so he, he uh, gets Ted to agree to um, a search of his apartment. It's not an actual court-ordered um, police warrant where they're searching for c- right. certain items. They're just doing a walk around his apartment to see yeah. what's up. Um, inside, they found some stuff that was interesting. They found a, uh, a guide to Colorado ski resorts with uh, check marks by the Wildwood Inn and a brochure advertising the Viewmont High School play in Bountiful right. where Deborah Kent had disappeared. Absolutely. Now that to me, that's like beyond. That's like that's a fucking that's ex that says, "Yeah, I kidnapped this girl." It's like, like yeah. what? What? Why are you doing? What are you doing at a high school play when you don't know anyone there? Yeah, and then it all suspiciously, this girl comes up missing there, and you happen to have check marks on maps and and mm-hmm. different at uh, the ski resort. Where ski resort a woman came pamphlets up yeah. where women were missing, and it, yeah, it's the police at this point. They know pretty much. They know it's him, but they, they don't have anything that they can yeah hold them on arrest him. for these kidnappings and stuff like that. Right. Um, and he would end up being released on his own recognizance, um, uh, but nothing like sufficiently like we talked about was was yeah. enough to keep him. Exactly. Um, Bundy later said that the police that searched his apartment missed a collection of photographs of his victims. Much like Dahmer, I believe there was an instance where uh, the, the kid escaped Dahmer. The police brought him back after Dahmer convinced them that it was just a... a a little fight between them. Oh and, yeah, that's right. And, and if the police were kind of uncomfortable with the homosexuality yeah, situation. And if, and if they'd they actually search, if they'd actually looked around his apartment properly, right. I believe there was either a body in the room or there was Polaroids of chopped oh, yeah. up dudes. I think he had like a head in his apartment at that time. Oh yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> he had his, his shrine was halfway complete. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Bundy said, yeah, that's just crazy that he said that there was a collection of Polaroid photographs of victims that were in that apartment. And they didn't see him. Right. And he also said that uh, after that in close encounter, he destroyed all the photos. Oh, of course. Naturally. Yeah. And then in September, he sold his VW Bug to a teenager in Utah. The police would end up impounding the car and dismantling it. Um, that would later be on display at a museum, as we talked about, oh. which is it's real morbid. It's different than the uh, Bonnie and Clyde car. We were kind of talking about that. Like, uh, yeah. Bonnie and Clyde car is, is like, feels historic, and it feels like... 
I don't know. It just doesn't have that same just dirtiness to it. Like Bundy, no, the Ted had... Bundy car just seems creepier. Like, yeah. man, how many dead bodies laid in this passenger floorboard? Yeah, you know, yeah, it's it's not definitely not the same. Hairs belonging to Carolyn Campbell, Melissa Smith, and Carol DeRanche would later be found in the car. Hey, the real victim here is that teenager who thought he had his first car, or he or she had their first car, and then now they got it taken away. Right? Did they get? I wonder if they got reimbursed. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> Give them some memorabilia or something they could sell on eBay later on. Exactly. <laughs> it is kind of shitty. Yeah. Like, I just bought it. I just bought. It. It's like, well, if he knew, all it needed was a passenger seat. But would you want to <laughs> keep that if you knew what had happened in that thing? Would you buy a house that you knew something horrific happened in? Like either uh, say a suicide or like a murder happened in that house. Like I don't think I'd want to live there. I'd just no, I guess not. But if you didn't once you know, know once you know though. You can't go back. But you'd at yeah. least want your money back from the police, right? Yeah, like, right? You're like, you can buy this car from me. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. On October 2nd, Carol Durant. Now, we talked about the detective that uh, connected the uh, the, the uh, description of the car and all that stuff to the kidnapping with Carol Durant. Right. She was able to positively ID Bundy in a police lineup as the man who tried to kidnap her. So now the police got him. Like, they've got something on something solid that they can hold him on. Right. And eventually have a trial on him for... Um, he was also yep. ID'd by witnesses at the high school where Ke- Deborah Kent was. Um, yeah, she was the twelve-year-old, right? No, uh, no, she was the seventeen-year-old. That yeah. was, it was this was the high school the play, play. Yeah, because he walked around there for a while. Yeah, plenty Talking of all people kinds of saw girls. his face, f- heard his voice. Yeah, yeah. Um, however, the evidence to link him to Kent was not found, so they couldn't really try him on that yet. But they knew it was him. Yeah. How many ID? How many eyewitnesses do you need? I know to confirm somebody at a place. Right. Well, uh, you need you need a body. You need something that ties him more to it than just people's yeah, word. Okay, that's true. So he would be arrested and charged with the attempted criminal assault in the uh, Carol Durant case. So he's going to undergo trial. He's being held uh, on $15,000 $15, bail. Um, but he was able to make the bail thanks thanks to his parents. His mom always stuck by him. Always. Mothers do, All man. the way to the end. Yeah, I mean, you can't yeah. blame him. I can see my wife being like that. Even if my son turns out to be a serial killer, God forbid, Yeah, my wife would always love him. Ironically. I don't know if I would. Son of serial killer, lifelong serial killer podcaster, <laughs> turn serial killer. Right. Uh, so he's out, but he would remain under close supervision. The lead investigators from Utah, Washington, and Colorado all met to discuss their different uh, murder sprees. They came up with the, conclu- the conclusion that Bundy was responsible for all of their cases, and uh, he's still walking the streets at this time. His girlfriend, Liz, would later say that uh, during this time when he was out on bail mm-hmm. between the uh, Carol Durant thing, and uh, he was about to go on. He was about to get arrested for murder, by the way, which we'll get to. But right. just during this time, while he's walking the streets, the surveillance was there. Like she said, that anywhere, anytime they'd walk out on the patio or they would go anywhere, there would yeah. be so many, so many cars, unmarked cars, sitting outside that would start up. It sounded like the Indy Five Hundred. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like a train of black SUVs following him around, right? <laughs> Crown Vicks. Yeah. Now, when the Durant trial came, he chose to not have a jury. He wanted to just uh, try to convince the judge. Mm-hmm. He was given a public defender, and he would end up being sentenced to uh, 1 to 15 years, which is quite a gap there. It's kind of random. Yeah, it is. 1 to 15 years, he was uh, found guilty in the Durant case. The judge didn't buy whatever the uh, defense was going on. Right. And after that, Bundy would have fired his public defender. And uh, he'd be sentenced, like we said, in Utah prison for that. And mm-hmm. then by November, he would end up being charged with murder of the Karen Campbell case in Colorado, where he would then be transferred back to Aspen, Colorado in January of 1977 to stand trial for that. Now, right. after losing in the Carol Durant case, 
and uh, he no longer wanted the public defender. He wanted to defend himself in this murder trial. Exactly. And here's where you see... His law experience, you know, why not, right? Yeah, I think he had a year of law school. I mean, that's plenty, I think. Uh, For when you got an ego like him. How long does it take to be a lawyer? When you got an ego like him, he's watched plenty of Matlock, and you'd see him (laughs) strut around the courtroom in several several different times where he'd defend himself in murder cases. Yeah. Strutting around, you know, he'd see him sit... And there'd be times, (laughs) be times you'd watch the video where, like, the judge would be like, he didn't even know it was his turn to stand up and like <laughs> and like interview and it's it's terrible for the victims because there's several times where someone that he sexually assaulted had to be questioned had to by be him, questioned right? by the guy who did it yeah in multiple like, and, and not just once like there'd be appeals they'd have to come back and do it again yeah it's just yeah, it's it's awful and he's like I said he's strutting around and he's so confident and he, and, oh yeah nothing's yeah, catching just, him by surprise yeah and the judge is like. Ted, <laughs> he's sitting there like, oh, my turn. Oh, oh, oh. objection. <laughs> oh, 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 it's my turn. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, but being uh, being his own defense gave him special privileges, which may have been mm-hmm. some kind of a ploy yeah. for a possible escape. Yeah, I think so. I think it was part of it the whole time. Yeah. So uh, once in Aspen, Colorado, he chooses to defend himself and he's given the privileges to go to the library with no right. chains, no handcuffs, nothing like that. Not even a jumpsuit. Not even a jumpsuit, street clothes. No. Yep. Um once up in there, uh <laughs> supposedly supposed to be studying to defend himself. Right. He views an open window that he'd been keeping an eye on. He'd been keeping all this eye on this window. And I guess people that like were around him, they were saying like they almost thought he was messing with him because he kept like day after day he'd go over that window and look down and like look out and <laughs> I don't think I can make that jump. <laughs> One day he decided he could. He opens the window, jumps out, spraining his ankle. There was like a four four inch divot in the ground where he landed. Such a high oh, jump, wow. and he's gone. Gone. T- took off. Right. And I mean, he's not easily noticeable. He's and you know he probably just like made a different facial expression, and then nobody could tell it was him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Grew out his beard a little bit, probably. Right. Well, this is June in Colorado, so it could have been. At least it wasn't, uh, you know, <laughs> December, January, February, one of those in the right. heat, of, right in the middle of winter. Well, then there'd just be snow tracks. We'd be like, yeah, he's he's over there, right? <laughs> and he's out. He's out there, and he's uh, he's running through the mountains and whatnot. I guess he makes it over some mountain pass, and he'd end up being caught six days later when he's pulled over in a stolen car for reckless driving. I think he'd like broken into somebody's cabin, didn't he? And like stolen a gun and food and stuff like that, and they were kind of tracking oh, yeah. him that way. They were tracking him because he's breaking into cabins and right, watching people. There was, I think he was. He said he was standing in the woods near a cabin up there in the mountains in Colorado and uh, planning on breaking in, but he, he the people were still there and he could hear him talking about him. Oh wow! About Awkward. how uh, I wonder if Ted Bundy's going to come by he's, he's nearby. He broke out. Sure enough, he's breaking into their house later, <laughs> stealing their gun and shit. He's knocking on the door. As a matter of fact, <laughs> <laughs> right. What's kind of funny is that he was so confident leading up to the escape. Mm-hmm. Like he, he thought that the the, uh, the prosecution was so weak, and he was just bragging about, "Oh, they have no chance," right. and all this stuff. And then he fucking jumps out a window and runs. Well, off. he's saying, "Well, he's saying I have no chance of being caught." I think that's his thing. It was, I think, it was the phrasing and a lot of the uh, the later interviews. Yeah, where he was planning these escapes because he he did an interview. But also, right he felt that, real. He, he was like, "There's he, no way I'm going to jail." But also, he felt real confident in this trial, in the murder, in the murder trial of Karen Campbell. He felt real confident right. that the, that the prosecution was they were inexperienced and they were weak, and that he could defend himself in this. And then he runs off. And then when he got recaptured, he still felt pretty confident. Everyone around him felt pretty confident, and that's what's it's so silly. It's like a normal, rational person looking at this this trial. It was a weak it was a weak prosecution during this time that he was facing in this, right. and they didn't have a lot. They didn't have DNA. They didn't have, 
you know, it was a lot of just the weird coincidences in his early days of, of being, you know, yeah, nowadays. Like they could put him at the scene. But he left, like, he left, I mean, yeah. he left evidence everywhere, but this is the 70s, like you talked about. We don't yeah. have DNA. And even like the hair comparisons and stuff in the day, there was still like, as a prosecution, you could argue like, or the defense could argue like, well, it's hair. Like, it, it, they could only narrow it down to like a certain percentage of like, well, this is most likely this person's hair. Right, right. Just looking at it through a microscope, it, it looks the same. Mm hmm. But it's not, you know, there's no 100% DNA. This is one in a billion type of like right. one in 300 million type of thing. Yep. There's a lot of circumstantial shit. And he would have most likely been a free man had he stu- just made it through this trial. Even as his own defender, he could have been I mean, that's still temporary though, right? I mean, I think if even if he, if he wins this trial here, it's still temporary. Yeah. It's just buying him time. Yeah, you're right. There's maybe too much just, out there Maybe right he now. knew that all these states were coming against him, and there was yeah. going to be just one murder trial after another. That, yeah. While he's on trial for this one, the other the other murder cases are just getting stronger. They're acquiring more stuff. Yeah, there's um, no way he makes it. So while yeah. he's on trial, he starts, he starts uh, hatching up a new escape plan. Um, he ended up um, – he, he, he got a hacksaw blade from uh, other inmates, right. accumulated $500 in cash smuggled in uh, that he smuggled over a six-month period. Um, and he was getting help from a woman named Carol Ann Boone. Yeah, that's particular. where he was getting most of the money. Yeah. And then during e- evenings, while other prisoners were showering, he sawed a hole in the uh, about one foot. So above him in this jail cell, they were putting in a light fixture. Yeah. And there was, I guess it was, it was in mid-construction, and there was like a metal plate covering where they were going to put the light in. Wow. Seriously, people. Right. So he would take the plate out, huh. and then he was sawing at concrete with uh, this little saw blade. Right. And uh, he was doing it every night, and then yeah. replacing the the metal plate covering it. Right. And every night, That's he, brilliant. You gave him his own freaking poster to cover the hole. Right. And it was the I guess the ceiling <laughs> in the cell was high enough to where he it was so short that he could get up on the bed and get up right. in there. And at a certain point, he gets this thing cut out, and he's going up in there and walking around up in the fucking. <laughs> He's walking around in the out. ceiling or crawling around up in the ceiling Didn't space. Did he lose like 35 pounds to be able to fit through the yeah. hole or something? Yeah, and he's not like he eating during himself. this time. Yeah. And he, always during his trials, he's always complaining about the jail, about the prisons, uh, the prison life, saying he's not getting fed right. Yeah. And he's not getting, um, it's, it's, it's inhumane, the treatment. And he would use that, he would use those excuses to get, you know, more rights within the prison. He was always working the system. Right. He was a fucking brilliant man when it came to that. He knew how to work the system. That's why he got so many stays of execution in the end. Right. And I think a lot of this was being televised, too, at this point. I mean, he's, he's big news at this point. So he's also gaining, trying to gain empathy from the public. I think people watching, you know what I mean? Well, trying I don't know. What, get, he would, what would he get from the public, though? No, just empathy in general. Just, just gaining people on your side, being like, "Oh, this man's being mistreated and hasn't even been proven that he's done this or whatever." And, and also, maybe for and, the juries, what maybe what you're saying, if if he's saying this stuff during his trial, defending himself, saying he's getting mistreated in prison, absolutely, and he's not able to properly defend himself, he can right. try and get retrials and things like that. If he's, you know, I'm malnourished, I can't even defend myself properly. Right. right. He's just he's always working the system. He's brilliant yeah. in that. And meanwhile, he's also working on an escape. Which no one saw coming. Like, there's, I mean, the dude is freaking sawing at his roof, walking around up inside the inner parts of the prison. My, my thing is, is there not like is it, is this dust a gen- and shit I think it's a like jail all on the floor? Like, think, was he sweeping this stuff up? I, th- I think it's safe to say this is a jail, though, that he's in, which is, I mean, jail, escaping uh, from jails okay, and escaping yeah. from prisons is a different story. But. Right, right. Yeah, we've learned that, during, if nothing else, during this podcast. Right. <laughs> and so, and, and he's waiting for the right moment. He's, he's, um, on several nights, he's gone up in there and found the right spot. He, he finally yeah. found the spot where he's, he can come down from the, the ceiling tiles up in there, 
He's walking around like freaking Bender in, in uh, Breakfast Club, right. crawling around up in there, and he <laughs> finds a spot where he can come down into the freaking... Uh, it's like a living quarters of a guard. No, not a guard. Like the head <laughs> of the fucking jail. It was the chief jailer who was out for the evening with his wife. It was December 30th. It was but didn't Christmas. didn't he sit up there for a second and it was, like waited well, he for waited, the, the it, jailer to leave? Well, he was, it was, uh, was going to be a... He was getting moved. He was going to get a new change of revenue to Denver because he he'd talked about how it was too... Like he was too popular in Aspen and he wasn't going to get a fair trial because the jury all knew him and all that stuff. Right. So he gets a change of venue to Denver and he's impending the move to Denver. So he needs to make his break soon. And it's perfect timing because it's December 30th. Uh, most of the jail staffs on Christmas break, or they're fucking getting drunk that night after mm-hmm. they get off, and they're just waiting. Um, a lot of nonviolent prisoners were on furlough with their family, so they weren't even there. And so he piles up books in his room. He's found where he's going to come out, and it's going to be into the chief jailer's freaking room. <laughs> he found a way to go through the prison down because right. you know a lot of these chief jailers they live at the jail, right? Um, and so he he found a spot where he can go down into the chief jailer's like closet, I think. Yeah. And so he piles up um, all of his, his law books and stuff that he's supposed to be using for his own defense on his bed, right. underneath, underneath his bed sheets, makes it look like he's sleeping. And he'd also, like we talked <laughs> about, been um, not eating. So he, at this time, he's not eating breakfast. Mm-hmm. And everyone, you know, all the uh, wardens know that. They're walking around, and, and like, they put the food, the breakfast there, and every, every day at lunchtime, his breakfast is still sitting there. Right. He's starving himself to go through this hole, but he's acting like he's just mistreated and he doesn't like the food or something. Exactly. I forget what his excuse was for not eating breakfast. Right. He's fasting, intermittent fasting or something. Yeah. And so it's understood that the, um, they're not going to really see Bundy. They're not expecting him to be seen from right. the night of dinner until lunchtime the next day. There's a good like 12-plus hour period there. Yeah. They bring his breakfast. It sits there. And then at lunchtime, they, they have to f- spot Bundy inside the jail cell. Yeah. And so they set his breakfast there that morning. No, you know, whatever. Probably tap he's, it on the bars. He's already gone. He went. Yeah. <laughs> he left it like midnight, December 30th, like... Like a scene out of a movie, they pull the sheets back. The and what's crazy? <laughs> what's crazy is in Anne Rule's book, uh, she talked about how he's he's sitting like over the over the apartment, and he can hear the the chief jailer and his wife talking, and he almost yeah. thought it was like a scripted conversation, like they knew he was up there, like they were having a conversation, like and and I guess the chief jailer was like, "You want to go to a movie tonight, babe?" Or I think the maybe the uh, the wife said, "You want to go to a movie tonight?" And he's like, "Sure." And like he, Bundy's sitting up there, like, "Are they fucking?" Trying to screw with me right now? <laughs> Are they, they're just going to stand in one place and make foot noises. This is all too perfect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But sure enough, they actually. Okay, they, we're leaving. Now. <laughs> we're leaving. <laughs> we're leaving. You can come. I mean, if somebody wanted to come in here, they could. Right. <laughs> so he, they leave. He goes down into the the uh, the closet of the right. chief jailer, steals some of the guy's clothes, which goes unnoticed at first. I guess he comes back into his closet and everything looked normal. He just right. walks out the chief jailer's front door. And he's free again. And he becomes a legend in Colorado at this point. There's people wearing like Bundy t shirts. They're all like, and there's radio shows that are joking about him. And it's like, yeah. He was like a big joke. There was drinks being made at bars. There were like Bundy drinks and like, you can't keep this guy locked up. He's a freaking magician and yeah. all this shit. Well, you see this in the point of a lot of the big serial killers. It becomes a, there's a part where there's like this underground fandom kind of going on already. Right. So. And so after stealing a car, he would drive uh, eastward out of Glenwood Springs, and the car, he knew the car, it was, kind of a, it. it was kind of a junker, he would find cars yeah. that had just keys in them, you know, like the old, that old gag on, right. on the freaking visor. Yeah, he pulled the visor. The one that he found life. that had keys was a hunker, and he knew it wouldn't be able to make it over the mountain out of, out of Glenwood Springs. It broke down in the mountains where he was able to get a passing motorist to give him a ride to Vail, which is 60 miles away. From there, he caught a bus to Denver. 
uh, where he boarded a morning flight to Chicago. And by the time he was on the morning flight to Chicago, the, the jailer still hadn't even found him. Like they, because we said he didn't yeah. eat breakfast. Right. They're bringing him his breakfast. By the time that they realized he was gone at lunchtime and they saw the books under the bed and stuff, he's already freaking in Chicago at this time. Damn. <laughs> right. It was uh, 17 hours later that they finally discovered that he was gone and he was already in Chicago. <laughs> Golly. And then from Chicago, he traveled by train to Ann Arbor, Michigan. There on January 2nd in a lo- local tavern, he watched his alma mater, <laughs> University of Washington, beat Michigan in the Rose Bowl. <laughs> oh, insult to injury. Everything's going his way. He's probably like thinking it's an omen. Yeah. Like, things but, are looking up. And at this time, I'm sure he's trying to think. I don't know. Do you think when he was in jail, he was, he, when he was planning his escape, he had, a, he had Florida in mind? Or if he's just, once he got out, he's trying you know, to figure out where he wanted to go. It's, it's interesting that before he... Before we really dug into this case, I'd always heard that about Bundy. I always heard that at this point, he was like, I just want to be caught. But I didn't get that from when, when I really dug into this story right. and his psyche. I didn't get that point. Yeah. I didn't. Get, I mean, I didn't get that vibe from him at this point. I felt I mean, like he still wanted to be free and he wanted to get as far away from Washington as possible. And there's no further place than Florida yeah. unless you leave the country. Well, he loved the beach. That's one thing that uh, a lot of people said about Bundy. He liked to yeah. be near the ocean. He liked the smell of the ocean, that kind of stuff. Right. And he, obviously, Tallahassee, Florida is one of the furthest places you can go from Colorado. Like he, oh, yeah. I mean, he's from the North Pacific Northwest, Washington, right. That's what Seattle I'm area. You can't get any further away. Exactly. Way so he's going as far away, you know, where no one would suspect him, Tallahassee, and you got a nice college environment near the beach. And yeah. so he, he eventually makes his way from Atlanta and ends up down in Tallahassee, Florida. And on January 15th, 1978, so he's hanging out. He's there for, I, I believe, a week or two. He gets mm-hmm. down there. And uh, he's trying to reestablish just a normal life. His initial plan right. when he went down there was to just get a small apartment. He got a new a new name. I forget what he was going by at this time. Chris Hager. Chris Hagen. Like Hagen. Hagen. Chris Hagen. Hagen. That's what it was. Chris Hagen. He gets a, uh, an ID. He gets a little room. He rents yep. from some old woman. He's doing gardening for and stuff. He finds right. a bicycle that's been like trashed, and he b- builds it back up. And he loves this bicycle. He's riding around. He goes down. <laughs> He's riding down to the corner store, getting a beer. He doesn't have much cash or whatever, but yeah. he's living in this little room. He's enjoying life, and he's you know he's like, I forgot how great freedom tasted and all that stuff. But it's a right. matter of time before the real Bundy comes back. Oh yeah, and his sure. impulses that he cannot control happen, and it doesn't take long. And on January fifteenth, nineteen seventy eight, so he's hanging out near the campus of FSU, right. and he enters the Chi Omega sorority, sorority house, house around two forty five a.m. I don't know if he'd been scoping this out. It said that I'm later, sure he had. It said that later on there was a um, later on they found out that there was a board at the Chi Omega sorority house that had a list, a list of the women's names that were in the in the sorority mm-hmm. and where their rooms were, which is how they figured maybe he pinpointed which girls oh. he was going to attack because he'd been following the ones that looked like his ex or whatever. Yeah, he didn't attack all the girls in the sorority, and they, it was supposed to be a lockdown sorority house. They had a um, a mistress that was was it a mistress? <laughs> a head a mistress, house mother, house mother or something yeah. that was supposed to be the uh, the head of thing, and she was supposed to be kind of like security, watch over these girls. Right. It was supposed to be locked down at night, but like we mentioned earlier in the episode, there was a, a broken lock mm-hmm. that there was in the midst of being fixed, so the door would kind of be like closed over at times. Right. That's how he made his entry. He was he was seen by one girl like crouching in there. There was several um, girls in the sorority that heard thuds. Right. Some there, of them well, were a little freaked out by that it. was coming home as he was leaving. Yeah. I think. And he was coming down the stairs yeah. and she hid in, hid in the hall closet. Mm-hmm. And she was one of the first people to find the victims. And there was a few girls that heard like thuds going on and they didn't know what was going they didn't know what the hell it was. Right. He would end up entering the room of Margaret Bowman, twenty one years old, and bludgeoned her to death with a piece of wood. He had like a log. Yeah, and he had like some kind of fabric wrapped around it as a grip. Mm-hmm. 
some very sort. opportunist. I don't know where, where do you, if you got the log just outside the sorority. If this was just something that, yeah, I don't. It doesn't sound like something he really planned though. Like it's like, is he just stalking him because he's a weirdo, and then one night he just can't handle it and he's just gonna do it? Yeah, I guess so. I guess he can only because like, why would he bring there. a log if he's really planning this out? Like, would you a log really? I don't know. It may be the perfect thing, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can't really leave fingerprints on a log. All they found was right. like pieces of bark and stuff later. It's exactly. Like, That's what I'm saying. It's just, it's just a big mess, and it's it's hard to track. Yeah. And so he he uh, like we we mentioned, he bludgeoned Margaret Bowman to death with that with that log. He then entered the, the room of Lisa Levy, 20 years old, beat her unconscious, strangled her, um, bit one of her nipples almost off. I've seen a picture of it. Pretty mm. disgusting. Uh, left a deep bite in her left buttocks and sexually assaulted her. Now this this deep bite. In the left buttocks of Lisa Levy would yeah. be the the thing that would later yeah. bring him down. It's the one piece of surefire. We talked about how hairs can be kind of inconclusive. Right. Like they can't definitively say 100%. This bite mark that he left when uh, later in a murder trial f- for her mm-hmm. put on display in front of a jury was was something that the jury felt very yeah. strongly unmistakable. about. Like, it's unmistakable. Like, yeah. They brought in a dental expert, and I mean, we'll get more into it, but yeah, that right. did him in. Um she shortly uh, died shortly after leaving, uh, arriving at the hospital. Kathy Kleiner was in the next room, and Ted broke her jaw and left a deep cut on her shoulder. She would end up surviving. Karen Chandler was also home that night. She suffered a broken jaw along with a concussion, loss of teeth, and crushed finger. Some of these women, he beat them so hard with his log that they had, like, fractures in their skull. Yeah. Their t- they would be end up um, needing reconstructive surgery on their face. Their teeth right. would never be the same. They'd end up in dentists every week or so. Yeah, both Kathy and Karen. Yeah, or survivors, and they would end up having oof. to go to trial and sit there, you know, and see him more and more. But yep. ultimately, I think that it was for the best because it was it helped closure seeing him get brought down, and knowing that they played a big part in it. They took pride in knowing that they brought him down. Right. Um, after leaving this, Ted was not done. He he was not satisfied enough. He broke into the apartment of S- FSU student and aspiring dancer Cheryl Thomas. I think she had a condo or something, and he left the. Uh, he actually left like to school, and she was in a nearby apartment. Uh, broke in. He dislocated her shoulder, fractured her jaw and skull in numerous places. Um, his encounter with Thomas left her permanently deaf and, and uh, had equilibrium damage. Golly. Yeah, this is brutal at this point, man. He's just leaving. Now he's le- but he's also he's damning himself too. That's why this part of the story makes me think that he may have just wanted to be caught here. I mean, living living that. It's funny that he was living. Free in Florida, everything seemed to be going fine, yep. and then all of a sudden he just snapped and went on this and did something that he never did: attacked multiple women in one place, right? And and left all these witnesses, left people alive. It was it was like he's been locked away for a little while. It's like I'm like going to go out with a bang here. It, it if was I'm going like, to go out. It's you know or either mean? that or his uncontrollable urges. He he hasn't been able to. Uh, he hasn't been able to satisfy them for so long. It's almost like you're on this strict diet and you love ice cream, and then one yeah. night you just you just freak out and eat an entire tub of ice cream. Yeah, you just fall into a Baskin Robbins. To know? me, I don't know if it was him wanting to get caught or more <laughs> as him just he had these uncontrollable urges to injure women and to own them. Right. You know, and it's like one night he just snapped and it all just came out. So you're just saying he went without it way too long. Yeah, and that's why he went on the stamp spree. Like even after beating. Uh, how many girls in that in that sorority four house? Killing four. two of them. Four of them. Yeah, that still wasn't enough. Yeah, beating yeah. four of them with a log, killing two, and it still wasn't enough. He still had to go and uh, beat Cheryl Thomas as well afterwards. It's just right. uh, to me, it's just like and he, you know, she was a dancer as well. I think we, yeah, never able to dance again earlier. after that. Yeah, with the equilibrium d- damage, you're not going to have any balance. You're not going to be able. To, yeah, yeah, that's awful. 
So after the Chai Omega slings, here comes the creeper van. So he's no longer driving the, the Volkswagen. He picks up a van um, somewhere. Well, his Volkswagen's been impounded, so. Yeah, it's gone. Got to get something new. He gets a, a, a some kind of, a, I think, like a white panel van. Yeah. Creeper van, basically. Yeah. And he steals a plate off of a RV somewhere, and he puts that yeah. on this van, and he's cruising around, creeping in this van, trying to pick up girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them was Lisa Ann Parmenter, 14-year-old. Um, he struck up a conversation with her on February 8th, 1978. Um, he was later identified to be Bundy. So he pulls up, she's alone. He's, he pulls up, he's got the door open right next to her. Right. Trying to get her into this van. She's feeling weird about it. I think her dad was a police officer. Yep. And so he's, he's talking to her and all of a sudden her brother pulls up. He's coming to pick her up. Yeah. Pulls up and he's like, what the hell's going on? Who's this weirdo talking to my, my sister? Yeah. Confronts him. Bundy's acting all strange, backs up, gets back into his van and takes off. The brother and her follow him for a little while, get the license plate number, report yep. it to the police. Like, well, they told their dad, who's the police father, officer, yeah. and he didn't feel good about it either. He looks mm-hmm. up the license plate, sees that it's an RV. He goes to the guy who owns the RV. He's like, yeah, my plate got stolen Yeah, um, a, a week or two ago. And, uh, and so, they find out the van is stolen as well. Yeah. They end yeah. up hypnotizing Lisa and her brother. She gives an amazing recollection. She's able to like relive this whole thing, and, and right. it, it, it's kind of emotional for her. And she's able to pick up pick out Bundy out of a lineup and everything. So they know yeah. it's Ted Bundy now. The brother was as well. He identified him too. Yeah, both both kids did. Yeah. And so now this using this van, he would pick up his final victim. Unfortunately, Kimberly Leach, Kimberly Leach, uh, fourteen years old, was dropped off by her parents at middle school. I think he actually ditched the van here before he got her. I heard that he actually ditched the van. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, because when the girl didn't get in, he's like, oh, this, I guess this is kind of creepy. Yeah. <laughs> so he ditched the van and actually stole another Volkswagen. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So he actually stole another Volkswagen before he went to the school. This this one is just so crazy to me. That's like, it is. As a parent, I can imagine dropping your, your daughter off at school. Like, it's supposed to be a safe place, right? Right. Drop your daughter off at school. The school later calls you and saying your daughter didn't come to school. And we're saying, what are you talking about? We dropped her off at school this morning. Yeah. And later they would uh, have witnesses that said that she was seen being drugged through the parking lot by her hand by what another parent thought was an angry parent at this yeah. do- at this girl. They didn't know the girl. They just saw an angry man kind of yelling at the girl and dragging her through the parking lot to his vehicle. Right. And they just said, oh, she's going to get a spanking. She did something bad or right. whatever. I mean, other parents, you don't want to get involved. You're like, oh, okay, that's that's how they're parenting their children. Who am I to tell them, you know, what they can and can't do? Right. I don't know. It's a, it's a perfect storm, man. Just a bad situation. Yeah. And her uh, her body would end up being found. Uh, the decomposing body of Kimberly Leach was found under a collapsed hog shed in Suwannee River State Park, April 7th, 1978. Soil samples and mm. leaves found in the stolen van led investigators to the spot. So it was the van. Oh, it was the van. It was the van. And mm. it was the, there was debris in the back of the van when they did recover it that showed that Kimberly Leach's body had been carried to that spot. Interesting. But he does ditch the van after this then. Yes. So I know he gets a Volkswagen again. He does. He, he picks up a Volkswagen, and then his final arrest happens, and it was kind of a f- fluky thing where it was just a routine traffic stop for speeding. Yeah. <laughs> it would be February 15th, 1978, near the state line of Alabama and Florida. He would be uh, pulled over for speeding by Officer David Lee of the Pensacola Police Department. Um, once pulled over, the license plate checked and found to be belong to a recently stolen automobile. Now, this officer didn't know what he had yet. Right. He's just pulling this guy over speeding, and all of a sudden it's a stolen vehicle. So when he attempts to um, 
arrest Ted Bundy. He, he knows this is the end of the rope. Right. And this time when he gets pulled over, he's not going to be able to talk his way out of it. He's going to fight. He ends up, um, when, he's, when he gets told he's under arrest, he runs from the car, ends up kicking Lee's legs out from under him, running off um, and getting shot at. <laughs> Yeah, so the officer fires, right? And then he fakes like he got shot, right? He <laughs> just, so, like, lays there. That's <laughs> how so clever this bastard is. He's running away. Police officer shoots, misses, but Ted acts like he got shot, falls down, waits for the cop to come up to him, gets into another scrum with him. What if the cop just, like, shot in the air, and then he just fell? He's like, I know I didn't I didn't shoot you. I know I didn't shoot you. Right. Could, you just, <laughs> could you just get up? Could you? Let me shoot All you right. again. All right. I'm really going to shoot you if you don't get up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, so eventually the uh, officer is able to overpower him. Bundy at this time, he'd you know, he's not, he lost all that weight to get up through the uh, the jail to escape. And it's true, it probably took all he had to fight this officer. Yeah. Upon uh, looking into the stolen Volkswagen that he had, they found three of the four vic- uh, sorority victims' IDs in the car. Could you have mm. given yourself away any worse than that? Right. Well, he, I mean, they already knew what they had once they once they realized they had Ted Bundy on their hands. But he was right. once in custody here, though. Like he was he was assuming the name of the fake ID that he had at the time. What was his yeah. name? Uh, Chris Hagen. Chris Hagen. And they even yeah. called Chris Hagen at a certain point, and he's like, "What? No, no, that's not me. <laughs> I didn't do all that." And 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 Ted Bundy's still screwing with him. He's he knows he's like famous at this point, but the yeah. Florida the Florida police don't know. Yeah, yeah who Ted not. Bundy is right. Like, he finally gives up his name. Like, he's toying with them and toying with them, and he finally gives up his name after a long night of interrogation. And he's like, Ted Bunny, and they're like, all right. Like, wah, wah. like yeah. he, he thought they were going to be like, holy shit. Yeah. But when they you know, when they went in and looked his name up, they, they like, saw okay. that he was on the FBI's <laughs> 10 most wanted list, and then they started to realize what they had. Right, right. And his, he's talking to his attorney over the phone, and his attorney's telling him, don't tell them anything. But he starts to kind of break down and right. starts giving away stuff. He'd end up um, going... This is, this is where the big trial happens. He never escapes again. Spoiler. No, no he's good. No. <laughs> Two escapes and done. Never a third one. Um, and initially, for uh, under trial, he was offered a, a deal of 75 years if he pled guilty to the Bowman, Levy, and Leach murders. But he declined, thinking wow. that he was going to just... That was the best deal he could have got. Oh, 100%. He, he would have avoided the death penalty. Because, I mean, yeah. there's a lot of uh, conversation that goes around about Ted Bundy and whether he went to Florida because he knew that that was a quick... To execute, that's what I'd state. always heard. Yeah, I don't buy but that. I, but I, I didn't find that to be true. No. in studying him in, in depth, I didn't. No, because he didn't want to die. Yeah, all the way to the end, he kept trying to get his uh, stays of execution. Yeah, even he in kept his being final, successful at it. His final interview, he said he didn't want to die, and he would do whatever it took to yeah. not die. Yep. Um, ultimately, during the trial, it would be the bite marks that we talked about on Levy's buttocks that would bring him down. Yeah. It was a long and lengthy trial. It kept, you know, being retrials and, and oh, of course. I don't know. I'm not an expert on on courtroom stuff, but I know that he he just kept getting appeals and appeals and appeals, stays right. of execution, right. and people are getting pissed because it'd be like the day to execute Bundy, and then some shit would come down where he'd get a stay of execution yeah. again. Um, it, I think it was his fourth stay of execution that he finally ended up getting executed. Wow. On July 24th, 1979, he would end up being found guilty of the Bowman and Levy murders. Additionally, he was charged with three counts of attempted first-degree murder. He was given the death penalty twice. Six months later, he tried and convicted for the murder of Kimberly Leach. Now, the craziness continues because during the uh, penalty phase of the trial, Bundy called his witness Carol Ann Boone. Now, we mentioned her earlier. He worked with her at the state of Washington. And they'd been writing to each other. She'd become kind of obsessed with Bundy. She moved to Florida to be closer to him. And he would use her as a character witness in his defense. Right. Call her to the stand, said what a good guy he is, how he would never <laughs> yeah. do any of this stuff. Like, this is going to help. And she, <laughs> at this point, was obsessed with him becoming 
her husband. She wanted to marry him, mm-hmm. and of, of course, it wasn't going to be allowed. They weren't going to allow this to happen, but T- Bundy being savvy and uh, a law student, yep. he had found he had found back in his days of studying law a little problem in the system of Florida's law books, a little a little loophole, <laughs> I guess you'd say. Not a problem, right. but a way to get married. There was a lesser-known law that Bundy had discovered that said that if it, during the courtroom procedure, if while someone's on the stand, if you propose to them and they say yes, that you are now legally right. married because you were in front of a judge. I think it just had to be in front of a judge anywhere, really. I, think I thought it had to be during like a... Well, either way, he figured out this yeah. loophole, and while she's up there as a character witness, <laughs> and he's he's <laughs> doing his procedures as a freaking lawyer or whatever, he's standing up right. there, he proposes, will you marry me? And he did it wrong the first time. He said something... He didn't do it properly. He didn't say, will you marry me? He said something, would you like to be my wife or something like that? She said yes, and then they said, that's not going to be good enough, Bundy. So he went up up again and said, will you marry me? Can you imagine being someone that he had beaten like and and nearly killed, and he killed your friends in a sorority, and then then this mockery is going on, and he gets married in front of you? Like It's just disgusting. Yeah. It's a joke. Mm. I mean, it's it's funny, and it's interesting, and it's crazy. It just just adds to the allure and the craziness of Bundy, and it's just... He was just desperate at this time, man. Desperate, just but just desperate. It's, he's also making a mockery of everything, making a mockery of the system. He stays alive for way longer than he should have been, sitting right. there on death row, writing to people, gets married in the courtroom, ends up figuring out a way to have sex with her, even though they didn't have conjugal visits in Florida during this time at this prison. Right. But there was a there was a thing where it's, it's just, man, sometimes the prison system's so stupid. You know what I mean? Like right. the, the guards, how they're how corrupt they can be. Mm-hmm. There was a, there was a whole deal that they had at this prison that Bundy was at. That if you gave the uh, the uh, guards like five dollars or something like that during during uh, just regular visits in the big room with everybody where they're all sitting down, you right. give them five bucks, you could go behind the vending machine and have sex with people. And so uh. Bundy exploited this with with Carol Ann Boone mm-hmm. after they got married. She's visiting him. He pays off the guards. They go back there. They're doing this. She ends up pregnant. She's showing up to these courtroom procedures a little bit a right. little bit thicker than normal. All of a sudden, Ted Bundy's a father. While on death row, while getting these stays row. of execution. During only, this whole trial. Yeah. Wow. On uh, 1982, Boone gave birth to a daughter and declared Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy as the father. After three stays of execution and exhausting all avenues of appeals and with a new date set for his execution. Now, the, the public in, in Florida wants this guy dead so bad. Every right. time that the day of execution is coming, they're planning to party. They're going to be outside the prison. Oh, yeah. And they're calling it like the Bundy barbecue. And they got all these shirts, Fry Bundy, all this stuff. The radio shows, are, they've got all these mocking songs of him. You're going to die and all this stuff. And he right, keeps living, right. keeps going on, keeps going on. All the media freaks out on the days that he's supposed to be executed. They, they, they're all sitting outside the prison waiting. And then they, get, <laughs> they have to call it off. It keeps right, happening. Right. Uh, but you know, he knew eventually his day was going to come. The stories uh, that he told revealed no new evidence that it was concluded. We talked about um, during the um, Gary Ridgway episode mm-hmm. how that was one of his ways near the end after his like second day of execution. He knew the third one was coming. I believe it's between the second and third that he starts getting desperate and saying, I can start giving you guys more information because he's been withholding all he's still saying he's innocent exactly. on all this shit. Exactly. He starts saying, I can, you know, I can give up some stuff and I can also help out. He writes to Keppel during the investigation of the Green River Killer. This is right. when Gary Ridgway hasn't been found yet. They're looking for this guy who's killing all these people up in, in the Pacific Northwest, yeah. killing all these women. And he he's writes to the investigators of the, of the uh, Green River Killer right. and offers his, his knowledge of... Right, as we talked kill- about that in our yeah. And so, episode. yeah, we, yeah, we talked about it. So Ke- Kevin comes down, and that's when he starts finally, near the end, when he knows it's over and he's finally going to get killed, he starts giving information, he's yeah. doing his interviews. Um. 
And uh, the, I think it was just ha- too little, too late, man. Yeah, I think it was. It was too little, it was too late. Mo- he had already passed away, passed up all these deals that he had been given. He's yeah. at the end of the rope. Yeah. Well, there was a new governor in town. Uh, Governor Bob Martinez in Florida, he was not having these stays of execution anymore. Right. But he, near the end, he got, he got it given a date. He was scheduled to die January 24th of 1989. And Governor Bob Martinez said, you're not getting any stays of execution. When Bundy started pleading, saying, I can give up more information, he's saying, well, you better do it in the next six days because you're going to be yeah. dead. And anything, any attempt by Bundy and his defense to try and get him more stays, it, wasn't, it, was, it was not going to happen. So right. on the day, January 24th, he'd been through these days before. He'd been through days that he was supposed to die, yep. and he wasn't nervous because he knew he was going to get out of this time. He knew he wasn't getting out of it. Yep. He had scheduled um, his final interview. He gets the final laugh. He gets to have his say the day of, hours before he dies. He has- Actually, I think he does the interview on the 23rd. Did he? Yeah, because he was uh, executed first thing in the morning at 7... 7.16 Okay, so well, either way, hours before he's killed. Right. It'd be the night before, I would think, probably, or the evening before. Right. He, he would sat end- down with that, uh, that reverend. Yeah. Reverend uh, James Dobson, the founder of uh, the religious right powerhouse Focus on the Family. He was a prominent anti-pornography advocate. And uh, so Bundy chose this guy, and they'd been of communicating course. for a, they'd been communicating for a long time. And it was Bundy's excuse; it was his chance to pass off his his uh, crimes on something other than just his own. Mm-hmm. And I put a little bit of that spill in the intro. Um, yeah, if you guys want to hear that? That's kind of what Bundy wanted everyone to hear. Yeah. So I thought I put a little bit of that in there, and also a little bit of what everybody else thought about him. Too. This interview was just another face of Bundy, him lying, and and he trying to yeah. he, the whole time he's just full of shit. He's just saying, yeah. you know. This this effect of pornography on children it, it creates monsters like me and it's like the yeah. same argument of like people saying that Grand Theft Auto creates killers and like video right, games right, violent right. video games and this and that and it's plenty it's, of people grow up and you, you have to have that predisposition I think yeah and he does mention that he does mention that there are there for the are right children. for the right person right he doesn't influences he, yeah he's not as naive to be like oh everyone that looks at violent pornography is going to be a serial killer but yeah he's definitely heavily suggesting it yeah. Well, Bundy, uh, his execution was finally carried out January 24th, 1989, 7.16 a.m. Old Sparky got him. That's the electric right. chair in Florida's prison. We talked about it with uh, Aileen Warnos. She avoided mm-hmm. it because uh, she ended up getting lethal injection, right? But she, right. Uh, it, the, they stopped using Sparky before Aileen Warnos, but they were still, they were still in effect. <laughs> God, the thing was creepy. If you look up pictures of Old Sparky, right. it's just creepy. And there's like a brick wall behind it, and it's just... And you look at you can see pictures of Ted Bundy's body afterwards, his head all fried up, and it just looks yeah. super painful to me. It looks just like a scene out of the Green Mile. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Except they like... used the water on Bundy. They shaved his head, yeah, used yeah. the water, the electrodes. I think the electricity passes down through your body and out your legs. Like you can see these nasty like bruise marks on his legs. Right. Oof. Yeah. Hard and, way to go, man. And the but uh, prison deserved it. And the prison from the outside dim the lights dim a little bit during it. It's pulled it's so much creep. power. Yeah, it's just, oh, the whole thing's just eesh. all the other to a celebrating doors open to a <laughs> to a celebrating crowd out there. Oh yeah, they party heavy. The Bundy barbecue. Yep. So yeah, that's, so that's Ted it. Bundy, that's guys. Ted Bundy. That's Ted Bundy. And our career's over. We're man, done. the legend. We're retiring now. That's it. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you guys enjoyed no, it. Uh, we tried one. to maintain the same amount of energy in the second half of this. You guys didn't really know, but there was a break between it. We talked about it on Twitter for a minute, but yeah, we got about an hour seventeen into this, and mm-hmm. Michael had to go look at houses and stuff, and he's he, he was busy on the original recording day, right. so we had to cut it off. We didn't realize how long this was going to be. We didn't know it was going to be well over two hours. 
Right. And so we cut off an hour 17, and then we came back two days later and tried to jump <laughs> right back into it. And we we're struggling at first, so hopefully the second half was as good as the first half. Right. And hopefully you guys enjoyed this. And hopefully we didn't get too much wrong. This is a lot to cover. This is serial killer. It was, it was aw- awfully lot. busy, and there's a million sources out on Ted Bundy's. Like we talked about, one of the most infamous guys ever. Absolutely. But hopefully you guys liked our rendition of it, and it was worth your money as a Patreon member. Yeah. And uh, we had a lot of fun studying it. We would do it again in a heartbeat. Yeah, for sure. Maybe, maybe we'll, not the exact case. Maybe we'll do Ted Bunny Revisited someday. Ted Bu- <laughs> the shit we got wrong. Do it over oh, Well, again. yeah, they'll probably be one of those. Maybe we'll make that an extra thing later. Yeah. All the new shit that we found Ted out. Ted Bundy or- Redo with an X. Yeah. <laughs> asterisk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was fun, though. That was a good one. That was fun. All right, Creepers. Welcome back to the present. Hope you enjoyed that little blast from the past from almost two years ago. Guys, we want to thank you for your patience. Um, I've, I, Michael, recently have moved uh, across the country again. I'm, I'm from North Carolina. I'd moved and lived in Las Vegas for a while. If you don't know, I've moved back to North Carolina, whatever. So it's been a whole ordeal and learning how to record remotely. And we're, we're still working through the kinks of, you know, my new job and working through that schedule and things like that. So thank you all for being patient with us. Uh, during this time we we will get back on track and we are still releasing episodes on a weekly basis um it's just it's hard to pinpoint pinpoint a day right now you know that's the problem we're having but anyways guys enough bitching enough complaining the podcast is still rolling okay it it may not be as it may not be so consistent as far as the release dates but there will be episodes consistently popping out okay so Listen to some backlogs or whatever you got to do, you know, to, uh, to to feed that need. Or there's a million other good podcasts out there, you know. So you, you, what am I complaining? I'm, I'm acting like you guys are complaining, but you're really not because you are amazing listeners. And we appreciate y'all support so much. Another person we appreciate the support of is Oh My Gaia. Guys, if you're not trying Oh My Gaia yet, you're going to love it. I'm just saying it's it's better. You feel better about yourself. The scents are, are light. Uh, the deodorant is light. You don't have that sticky shit under your armpits and in your hair, guys. You know what I'm saying? Or girls. You know, whatever. I'm not judging. You don't have that shit in your armpit hair. You know what I mean? It's just, it feels better. But Oh My Gaia is an innovative, all-natural deodorant, fragrance, and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while maintaining effectiveness. At Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural paraben and aluminum-free organic ingredients. And guys, I promise you there is a scent that you will love. Guys and girls, whoever, there is a scent that you will love. Un- there's there's even unscented. So if you don't like scents, or maybe you can't smell, you know, maybe you've lost your olfactory sensors. You know what I mean? Maybe you're down to four senses. That's okay. We got unscented. Don't waste money on scents. I don't know if it's any cheaper though. I'm going to check that out at ohmyguy.com. But they have unscented vanilla, cherry almond, sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass, Egyptian musk, coconut, dreamsicle, leather, lumberjack, honeysuckle, fireside. I love, I really like Fireside, but my favorite is Egyptian Musk. That's the one that I just, that was the first one that I got. Of course, that was before we had our very own scent, True Crime Pine, uh, which you definitely need to try. It has our old school podcast logo where it's just the headshots. Very cool design uh, that Wendy came up with on that. But guys, because you're a True Crime Guys listener, you use the word creeper. And you can get 15% off your order at ohmygaia.com. That's O-H-M-Y-G-A-I-A.com or at shop underscore ohmygaia on Instagram. That code word is creeper for 15% off. All right, guys, that's pretty much it. Um, I think next week 
We are taking an off week. Lauren is going hunting, so it's his fault. So, you know, bitch at him. And uh, we'll be back at it in a couple weeks with a uh, real banger that we're kind of excited about. So that will be another freebie. But uh, we'll see you guys later. Keep creeping. We like a mirage It's okay if you clicked on us Cause you thought we was true crime garage Now we ain't mad at you Sit down, let us talk at you I'm talking to the creeper army We out here making murder True crime guys In the desert we like a mirage It's okay if you clicked on us Cause you thought we was true crime garage Now we ain't mad at you Sit down, let us talk at you I'm talking to the creeper army We out here making murder charming